Joan Esposito. Live, Live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Terry Ryder. How are those holiday preparations going? Are you up to your elbows in smashed yams? Are you fondling a turkey in ways that you would not normally touch a living thing? What about the stuffing? Joan's got a day off. I'm Tory Ryder. In for Joan Esposito. There's so much going on today. This is like the opposite of a slow news day. So many things. First and, and top of mind for so many people is the impending pause in, um, I don't know how you would call this, P- pause in the Israel-Hamas war, pause in the a ceasefire in Gaza, in exchange for 50 of the hostages, women and children under 19 years of age, with with incentive, with a carrot, that for every 10 hostages additional that Hamas releases, another day of pause, also much-needed aid to the civilian population, including fuel, will be soon arriving during this ceasefire, and additional Palestinian Prisoners are reported to be um, released beyond the 150 women and girls who are set to be part of this initial 50 hostage swap. How does that happen? How do you negotiate something like this? You know, we hear all the time, you can't negotiate with terrorists. You can't negotiate with terrorists. Apparently, you can. And to tell us about it, someone who is known throughout so many parts of the world and government agencies, and we are lucky to have her here in Chicago, Dr. Nancy Zars. She is a forensic psychologist. She is the CEO and founder of Zars, and I hope I'm pronouncing your last name correctly, Nancy, Psychological Services. I am. Thank goodness for that. I I try. Uh, and, And you, I mean, you're a Carnegie awardee. You work with the FBI. You work in the prison system. What ties this all together? Well, I think what you've got is the intersection of, of terrorism and hostage negotiation. And so it's, it's that really skilled hostage negotiation, patient, painstaking, that seems to have led us to this point. Okay. Let's, let's look at that a little bit. The, the painstaking negotiation. And I, by the way, I didn't do the normal welcome to WCPT because I'm so excited to have you here. Talk about what what that looks like. Who, whom do you who do you talk to? I read an article in the New York Times that the two guys who used to talk to each other. I'm sure you saw this: a peace activist in Israel and a Hamas uh, leader uh, no longer are speaking since October seventh. Who who does one with whom does one speak? So you know we we kind of need to talk on two different levels. And okay. thank you for having me since I jumped over that part as well. Okay. So in general terms with hostage negotiation, you typically have trained expert negotiators who are negotiating with the hostage takers. That's separate from the authorities who make the ultimate decision. And and what negotiators just in general terms are trying to do is they're trying to restore calm. They're trying to build some level of rapport. 
they're trying to buy time, and we can come back to time, the advantage of time on both sides. They're trying to generate influence in order to eventually get to the behavioral change, which is the release of hostages. Now, I'm sorry, I've got a question, but you said you were going to circle back to time because it seems like in some cases, taking time is a disadvantage. True. Now, and, and, you know, so we're talking in general terms. In general terms, time works to our advantage. Okay. Because time allows emotions to reduce. You know, the the thing about emotions, emotions get in the way of communication. They reduce our ability to think clearly, and they interfere with decision-making. And, and that's not just in a hostage situation. I mean, think about the last fight you had with a significant other or with perhaps a teenage child. Well, you know, em- I, I, mean, emotions- I can reduce it to the last time I couldn't find my keys around the house. I'm, yeah, the lo- there you go. The later I when get, emotions- the angrier I become. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So when emotions are high, judgment is low. And that's what we call the emotional seesaw. Got it. So what a hostage negotiator is trying to do is is to balance that out, bring down those emotions so that we can increase judgment and rational thought. Got it. So it, it, it could be that the hostage taker is going to grow weary. You know, they're, they're going to be more open to offers from authorities. Maybe they've been suffering some kind of consequences during the siege. And it also can work to their advantage because maybe the, the authorities grow weary and so maybe they're not as resistant to the initial demands. Pressure builds on them to safely get hostages out. Now, the flip side, the danger, of course, is that hostages remain in danger. You know, this is, we, you know, we want to think of this. This is a criminal activity. So hostages are being held in harm's way by criminals. Yeah, that seems like a definition right there. There it is. And here, we don't even just have your average run-of-the-mill criminals. We have terrorists. Right. And so these terrorists have demonstrated repeatedly the use of violence, extreme, severe, and frequent violence, which increases the current risk of violence. You know, one of the things we do, like as a, as a forensic psychologist, when I'm assessing risk of violence, I'm looking at, among other things, what is the past history of violence? And if we have violence, then I'm looking at frequency, recency, and severity. All three of those are elevated with Hamas. You know, the October 7th attack, that terrorist attack, was the single largest life of, the single largest loss of life for Israelis and the largest loss of life of Jews since the Holocaust. It is really, I mean, I can't even... And, and and by the way, I just need to say this because we have a lot of listeners who are, are very sympathetic to both sides. So I, I want to also say that any civilian loss of life is is horrific. But I couldn't even read the the narrative of what one witness saw the Hamas fighters do. I mean, and, and by the way, I just want to warn people, this is graphic. If you are disturbed by this kind of conversation, just step away from your radio or, or go somewhere else for a few minutes but they were they were mentioning that women were shot while they were being raped they were mentioning mutilation of women and people making sport with their body parts uh this this is i mean you would assume that the people you're talking to in a hostage negotiation are not these actual people but might you be 
They might, they might be. We're not sure how much of the command structure was involved in that terror attack. And that's probably why when you talked about the Israeli that used to talk to Hamas and is not, I would imagine that might have something to do with that disconnect. Yeah. That this was such an outrage. You know, again, if you compare it to America, 13 to 1400 Israelis being killed would have been on a par with 40,000 Americans being killed in 9-11. Yeah. So yeah. October 7th was 13 times our 9-11. Interestingly, the, the person who negotiated with Hamas for the, for the release of Gilad Shalit, who was the last long-term hostage taken by that group, it wasn't October 7th itself. He would have, he was still trying to talk to this Hamas leader. It was when that Hamas leader gave an interview saying that, you know, his position uh, was that he thought that October 7th was basically a a great idea. And at that point, at that point, uh, the person in Israel who had considered him something of a, if not a friend, at least a fellow traveler on a road toward peace, um, actually sent him a text saying, you've lost your moral compass and I don't ever want to speak to you again. So now you're down one hostage negotiator. W- what do you do? Or can you but ever no, do that? Do you get to do that? Well, you do, because one of the things that a hostage negotiator needs to be able to do is manage emotions. And that starts with managing our own emotions. You know what I'm saying? So, like, you know, I'm a team. When I was working for the Federal Bureau of Prisons, I was a team leader of a hostage negotiation team. And part of what we needed to do was manage our emotions in order to try to negotiate with the hostage takers and help them manage their emotions. And what this guy is saying is that you trying to justify October 7th is so reprehensible to me that I can no longer manage my emotions in talking to you. I see. And that's really part of why the negotiations shifted to that neutral third party, because there, there, it was so abhorrent to the Israelis, you know, what had happened. And, and it's such an existential threat to Israel. And you're right. Loss of life on uh, is is. is bad no matter whose life it is yes so right now we're just talking about the you know the authorities behind the, the hostage negotiations right we're stipulating so that this is just up. about that right now yes we're 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 say, so Correct. this is where if i understand you correctly this is where cotter comes in um that they yes. they're kind of what we used to consider the the swiss to be they are neutral on this and and which is fascinating to me also because that's a big evolution uh for them but we're not going to go there right now so so but if i if i may jump in there i don't know that it's that we're saying that they're neutral i don't think that they anybody thinks they're, they're switzerland however what whoever that third party is needs to be acceptable to both sides so okay. it could be that Hamas wouldn't have been willing to accept a real Switzerland, and this was the closest that Israel could come to a palatable third party. Oh, that's interesting. Because thank you for explaining that that way. Because before I was like, wait a minute, Cotter has skin in the game here. So, so I, I understand now what you're saying is that. Uh, the Hamas can feel like Qatar is kindly disposed toward them, and Israel 
pardon my vernacular here, can can figure out that Cotter isn't completely bonkety bonkers, wants to annihilate them in its entirety. Is that is that a good paraphrase there? Okay. All right. So, so Cotter was tolerable. Got it. And it wasn't even probably just Israel because America has played a significant role here. So it was that it was tolerable. And, and I'm, you know, I'm just hypothesizing here. It's not like the State Department is not consulting with me. But, yet. you know, it became, yeah, not like, yet. It became not a, yet. a good enough. It wasn't maybe perfect, but, you know, we don't want perfect to get in the way of, of good enough. Okay. So this was a good enough neutral party to broker these negotiations. Okay. So now you're in who goes into the is I heard that there were actually people in rooms and Cotter running back and forth. Is that how that happens or or is it still like people on Zoom? Is it an advantage to actually be in the space where a negotiation is happening? In general, yes, but I'm also a psychologist, so I'm big on face to face. That's certainly going to be my that's certainly going to be my bias. I think we can tell a lot. When I can see you and I can read your body language and I can try to get a sense of the sincerity in your voice and in your face. But sometimes that's just not possible in any kind of hostage negotiation. And so maybe we're on the phone or maybe we're working through this third party. Got and it. I would imagine Hamas was kind of worried arrested. You know, again, they're engaged in criminal activity. So, you know, there was probably a certain reluctance to being right in the room well, they weren't. Because they're they're across the hall, as far as I understand it. They, if I if if I if the reporting I'm reading is accurate, they're in the same building, and someone is running from room to room, which is not the first time things have been done this way. Um, but no. but it's it's and w- the weird. The scale, yeah, the larger the scale, the more international the scale, the more countries that are involved, the more complex, obviously, this is going to be. Okay. It's not like somebody you know, robs a bank and, and the cops show up, and so he or she just takes those, those people in the bank to try to get his way out. You know, obviously, it's far more complex. Well, to make but matters if, if worse, to, wait, to make matters worse, and I have to ask you about this, from, what, from what's been reported, every negotiated item that Hamas is dealing from underground and there's no electronic communication, that's partly how they kept this raid secret. So physical like paper needs to be exchanged from above ground to below ground, giving offers and answers. And to make matters even worse, from all of the reporting we're seeing in the States, it's not even clear that they have all the hostages or where all the hostages are. So what does one do? I mean, you've described the, the node sort of thing where it's one person and hostages in one room. What do you do when the conflict is like a spider web? You allow for that. So, you you, you know, again, we, you make do. So it's maybe not perfect. It's not ideal by any by any means. But you make do with whatever forms of communication you have. And we don't know truly that there's no communication of any kind because Hamas so famously does use civilians and civilian infrastructure. So it, it could be that there is some communication, but it's probably not permanent. You know, it's more temporary. So, you know, you're, you're doing the best you can, passing information back and forth. Uh-huh. And, and then, may I say one other thing about this particular hostage taking? Sure. We want to put this in the context of terrorism. So hostage, like the, the bank robbery I just described, that hostage taking wasn't deliberate. It wasn't part of the plan. You know, the plan was go in, get the money and leave. Right. This hostage taking, when it's a terrorist strategy, 
is deliberate. It's calculated. It's planned in advance. And so we want to keep that in the back of our minds that that this is part of the terrorist activity, if you will. So up front and in advance, they took people, live, living people, innocent, noncombatants, to use as bargaining chips later to try to get something else that they wanted. And so they're praying, P-R-E-Y, on the humanity of the Israelis and the other, the other countries. You know, we want our people back while demonstrating a, a rather market lack of humanity. Let, do, you, let's, like, do you see the asymmetrical nature of that? Yes, but let, let's talk about some of the other uh, expert analysis that's come out of this that's surprising. Uh, two things I want to say in response to this, this idea. Uh, one is that... Although the orders were take as many hostages as you can, it seems surprising then to find out that where they brought them back to may not have been exactly clear to anyone. That Hamas has not kept track necessarily of where all these people ended up. They didn't plan that part. Um, Some of them aren't even with Hamas or Islamic Jihad, apparently. Uh, Nobody knows where they are, and Hamas may not know where they are. So that's the first. If they planned this, this gives way to my second point, which is that I hate to keep giving the New York Times credit, uh, but they sent somebody (laughs) they sent somebody to talk to the leaders of Hamas's political organization who are in Lebanon and who are in Qatar. They have offices there, just like a regular office in each place. And when they were asked, according to this reporter, what was the purpose of of this attack? Um, what were they going for? They really didn't have a clear answer other than that they felt that their cause had been leaving the headlines, that they needed attention yeah. redirected to their cause, which is to get rid of Israel. And the second thing they were hoping for was that Iran would get involved, there'd be a a regional conflagration, and they haven't gotten that. So when you say that there's something that they want, if they already hadn't gotten it, and it's already not up to the people in the negotiation to give it to them, then what? Okay, so let's back up on a, a couple of those. Remember that a plan is only as good as its execution. And that's across the board. So their plan was hostage-taking, but then people got involved, and, and we're messy, we're emotional, we don't stay to script necessarily. Okay. And so the fact that the plan went awry doesn't detract from the fact that it was, in fact, the plan. And the fact that we now have hostages who are who knows where and what physical and emotional state you know, still doesn't take away from the hostage-taking strategy. Okay, so that's number one. Um, and then I think I lost track of your question. Oh, the other one so was, what if the people you're negotiating with are, are, that's not what you really wanted. What you really wanted was for all of this to get people involved. And those people have no skin in the game on the hostages that you took. And they're clearly not going to participate in the regional conflict you were trying to incite. Right. So now they probably, and again, I'm not speaking to Hamas either, so I'm theorizing. They're probably shifting to plan B. And plan B is, the is the they perhaps underestimated the response of Israel and the fact that this is now a full blown war and so they're on the run and they're in danger and some of them are dying and by the way can we get some of those Palestinians out of Israeli prison 
So okay. it could be that now they've shifted their strategy, and now they're trying to use the hostages to get that ceasefire, or at least the pause in, in warfare, so that they can maybe get out of where they are, maybe they can regroup, maybe they can re-weaponize, and then they can live to engage, and meanwhile get some of their brethren I use the term lightly because we're talking women and children. Right. Get some of their fellow travelers out of Israeli prisons. Well, and they but ha- they're still using the hostages. I mean, keep that in mind. They're still using real live people as bargaining chips to try to demand something. It's very interesting that that. So what I got from what you just said is okay. They've now moved to Plan B. They always know that Israel will trade volumes of prisoners per hostage. And and the guy who reportedly orchestrated this whole October 7th undertaking learned this while he was in Israeli prison and was released in part of one of these prisoner swaps. He studied very carefully the the policy and, and the, the mode of operation of the government, which is no matter whether it's right wing or left wing, they will trade a lot for a single human life. He, he's even even for a no longer living person, they will trade a lot. So so what you're telling me is they are now falling back on, if you'll pardon the expression, Hamas's institutional knowledge of like, OK, if we can't have the war we want, we're going to at least get out as many people, which is weird to me watching this because the civilian carnage has been immense. And yet and the fastest way to get people out of harm's way would would it apparently have been to stop the massive destruction that Israel has rained down on them sooner. So is it just the fact that you're in jail that makes you a more appealing chip to Gaza? I'm sorry, to Hamas? Because clearly the citizens of Gaza have not figured in too mightily into Hamas's plan to release hostages. Or have I got that wrong? Well, I, I, I agree with a great deal of what you're saying. I mean, they, they certainly are not, they have not demonstrated, I can't speak for them definitively, but they have not demonstrated much regard for the innocent civilians of Gaza any more than they have for the innocent civilians of Israel. They have learned, you know, they're, I'm not going to suggest that I think Hamas are psychopaths, but I will tell you that I've worked a lot with psychopaths. And one of the things that psychopaths do is they learn how to take advantage of what they perceive to be vulnerabilities, what you and I would describe as strengths, compassion and, and care and, and, you know, just human nature. And so one of the things that we sometimes see a psychopath do in prison, American as well, is they learn how to be better criminals. They learn how to take advantage of our, whether it's, you know, the, the correctional employees or the government or the citizens, our humanity in order to get more of what they want. And again, that is criminal in nature. So I think what you're describing is an individual who, you know, perhaps was on the antisocial side of things, if not outright psychopath, that learned in prison that, that with a marked lack of empathy and a marked lack of concern and remorse, and a high willingness to engage in violence, he can get what he wants through criminal activity from a government that cares about its citizens. Wow. 
That's that, that. I'm almost ready to leave it there, but I have one more question. And you've been very generous with your <laughs> okay. time, and I appreciate it so much. Um, what's next if these hostages do come back? And Israel has has laid out, you know, per hostage, we'll give you X. Do you think they might accept that and start giving more hostages back? I think they might, but it's also a, even if they don't today or you know tomorrow, it's still a great sign. So in terms of negotiation, uh, an, an indication of progress for, like, let's say I'm the team leader and I'm advising the on-scene commander. What I'm looking at is, is there an atmosphere of compromise? Has there been some kind of trade or release of hostages? Have we negotiated past the deadline without incident? If I can argue or articulate to the on-scene commander that I'm seeing those things, then I can strongly encourage that on-scene commander to continue to authorize negotiations. So if we get a release of hostages, that is such a positive sign that even if we don't get more than the 40 to 50, you know, by whatever, Saturday, it bodes well for the next round of negotiations. Okay. So what you've, pardon the pun, it is intentional. What's been established here is an exchange rate. That that is what we have now. If, if, If these people... God help us, our currency. Now now we essentially know what they're worth to both sides. Dr. Nancy Zars, you've been really generous. I think we really understand more now about what's going on behind the scenes. And I hope you'll come back again. And I thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's Dr. Nancy Zars on WCPT Live Local Progressive, the Joan Esposito Show. I'm Tori Ryder. A little lighter coming up. We've got a Grammy nominee and a concert for a Chicago percussive institution in a moment on WCPT. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Turi Ryder. 2.32, pre-Thanksgiving madness in progress at my house anyway. Uh, Don't know about your house? I don't know. It's fun to be a guest, isn't it? You may not agree with me, actually, if you're stuck in traffic. No, I wish I were staying home. Um, All I know is my motto for Thanksgiving, it's the side dishes. That's my that's my Thanksgiving motto. And it weirdly seems to work. You know, people some people love turkey. But, you know, I believe I'm a firm believer. It's the side dishes. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But there's something really interesting going on in Chicago it's a confluence of history and music and accomplishment. It's a concert that's going to happen in December, and it, it features uh, the gentleman you're about to meet, Sean Connors. He is a member of the Third Coast Percussion Ensemble. Welcome, Sean Connors, to WCPT, and congratulations on your Grammy nomination. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I am. I was interested in particular to, to hear you talk about your concert, um, especially because and I've never pronounced Zildjian. I, what is it about percussion? They always have these odd names. Zildjian, Paista. Can, can we just name it like Joe's Percussion Company or something? You you are um, probably as an, a, accomplished a percussionist as there's ever been. You're Eastman trained. You've taught at every level. You perform. Um, tell me what drew you to put together this concert uh, on December 5th, is it? That's correct. Yeah, it's December 5th at DePaul University, Holtz Schneider Performing Arts Center. 
And we were drawn uh, by uh, the centerpiece of the concert is by our mentor, Michael Burrett, who used to be in Chicagoland. He used to teach at Northwestern University. He's at Eastman School of Music now. And he composed a massive new piece for us to celebrate the Zildjian Company. You were pronouncing it absolutely correctly. Oh, good. (laughs) It was embarrassing. I had a friend who lived, the old Zildjian building, I believe, is somewhere around Albany Park and it's condominiums now, if I understand it correctly. And I, he would always tell me where he lived, and I'd be like, oh, for Pete's sakes, just give me the address. So, <laughs> so but have I got that right? The Zildjian Company was based in Chicago, correct? Um, well, uh, I, I, I am not an expert on that. I know they, they're the oldest instrument company, oldest continuous uh, instrument company. They've been around for 400 years, and they moved from Turkey to the United States. They're based in Massachusetts now. Uh-huh. Um, and they're probably one of the world's most recognized instrument companies. They make symbols. Uh, yes, a percussion of all sorts. Um, I do. I do have a slight connection to the Paista company, but that seems to be more for class. Is there a division? Like one one type is for one kind of music, and another is for another, or no? Oh no, no. Uh, both both make. Um, Many different types of percussion instruments. I think Zildjian's a slightly bigger company, um, so they might have more products than Paiste, But I see. Yeah. So, okay, can I ask all of the rude pedestrian questions that people ask Please. now? <laughs> These are like just the rudest, most obnoxious questions, but... What is it really that draws a person to... Okay, wait, let me back up. As a mother of two kids, one of whom still plays music and one of whom played music for many years, I held my breath while I waited to see what instruments they would choose because any of the stringed instruments or any of the non-fretted instruments are just painful until they get it right. And anything involving a woodwind will cause you to run and buy earplugs immediately because that, that'll pierce four <laughs> floors of a building. But the nightmare of all nightmares for many of us is the kid who says, yeah, I want to play the drums. That, that, yeah. that is the one where you just go, oh, holy mother of, I, I need to move out of my house. So <laughs> what, what, what happens when you tell your family that you want to bang on things and that it's really music? What, how does that work? Well, I think, you know, there, there's, of course, that trepidation, right, that you talked about. But I think most humans have some connection with making sound by hitting or striking something. If you think about it, singing and percussion are the two most basic uh, instruments. So the two oldest instruments, there's percussion in every culture. Uh, from all over the world throughout history. True. Um, and there's many different ways of making uh, percussion sound. So, of course, in the United States, we think of drum set. That's probably the most iconic. Yes. And and uh, having a drum set in a studio apartment <laughs> would be very loud, right? No, yeah, but no, there's... you can't do that to people. That <laughs> That is, I believe, a lease-breaking uh, activity right there. <laughs> but there's there's thousands of different types of percussion instruments. So there's um, there's marimbas and vibraphones, which are like xylophones, and they're they're capable of playing melodies and harmonies the same way a piano would. There's um, there's a fun, cool, invented instruments like we're doing, uh, like we'll have on stage with us uh, on the on the fifth, and uh, everything in between. Huh. 
Well, I mean, that's interesting. It's funny you should mention that because many of us are, um, many of us are, are, I'm getting a note. I'm getting a note. No, I didn't. I got the note now. I, excuse me, a, a passenger pigeon in the form of my excellent technical operative sent me a note. Um, it's a lovely note. I, I will not read it to you. But but um, what I wanted to say was, aren't there people who use their bodies? I'm thinking Bobby McFerrin. There are people who use their bodies as percussion, yes? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's even been observations of our close relatives in the animal kingdom uh, doing similar things, you know, creating uh, rhythmic cycles with their bodies and with their the objects in their environment. So it's I think it's a very natural, along with team and voice, it's a very natural way of making music. Yeah. Well, I like that. So now I have to ask about your ensemble. What what are there of all the instruments percussive? And by the way, I did not know that xylophones and vibraphones were technically percussion instruments, although I know it is a trivia question that technically the piano could be called a percussive instrument because, yeah, yeah. yeah some, I, the, when somebody told me that, I just said, oh, that's cheating. <laughs> that's just not right but um what will be on stage with you what is part of your ensemble Ta- would you talk a little about it sure of course they'll be uh on, on december 5th at the concert to paul will be many recognizable percussion instruments like what we've been talking about already like marimbas or vibraphones or drums drum sets cymbals but there'll also be some things that you wouldn't normally think of at first glance as being a percussion instrument, but we play it in a percussive way. So if you can picture those uh, wire hurricane fences um, that are, you know, surrounding school yards and stuff, um, the fence posts. Oh, that's cool. That hold that together. We have a collection of eight of them. Um, we'll actually be moving around the audience at one point playing those. Um, and they are all cut to a specific length that they produce a specific pitch. And we can play melodies on them. Okay, um, is this going to so be that, is this going to be any kind of a piece that people might recognize? Well, the the, the uh, piece by Michael Burrett, who was our mentor, is a new piece. Right. Uh, so um, there are if you if you grew up in a Turkish household, <laughs> you might recognize an old Turkish folk song oh. uh, embedded in the piece because cool. uh, he drew inspiration. For his piece from that, because Zildjian is originally a Turkish company. A fitting tribute. Now, I, I got that it's a new piece. I just wondered if you were adding any old pieces, too. So the entirety of your performance will be this new created piece uh, by your as mentor. As well as uh, three, three other pieces, um, one by uh, Chicago native Clarissa Saad that was on a, uh, on a Grammy-nominated album, um, a piece that's on our latest um, uh, Grammy-nominated album by uh, Jim Peacock, and then a, uh, a cool, groovy um, mallet quartet by a uh, fantastic jazz musician, Machado Majiga, who's based out in Portland. Wow. This sounds... And do people come to your concerts? Here, here would be my guess. You have a percussion and music fan, and then they're alone because nobody around them is a percussion music fan, and they're lonely. And they convince <laughs> a bunch of friends, like, come to this concert. It will open your eyes. Do you get a lot of people after your concert saying, my friend, my family, my kid, drag me here, and my eyes are open, and this is amazing, and I've changed my entire view of what your category of instruments can do? Do you hear that a lot? You nailed it. That's that's one of our favorite and and most heard uh, feedback from audience members. It's uh, 
it, we really, really enjoy occupying that space where people come and they're, they're maybe have some trepidations about it or they're like, I'm not sure what this is going to be. Are you guys like Blue Man Group or Stop or something? Uh, drums for a whole hour? How is that possible? And right. then uh, we open a, kind of a new sonic world to them. And hopefully they become curious listeners uh, after that. I would think. Do do you use amplification or in this DePaul space, is it all um, natural and acoustic? I know they built a new space. It's a gorgeous new concert hall, and we'll be using both. Um, we'll be using uh, the natural sound of the instruments as well as some light amplification. It won't be it won't be like going to a rock concert, uh, but it, uh, there'll be some acoustic uh, and amplified. Well, sounds. once yeah. again, you have sensed my fear. I used to go watch the Mothers of Invention on their Mother's Day show every year in Chicago, and it required not one but two sets of earplugs. Yeah. <laughs> and I loved so, it. I mean, like it wasn't that song. I didn't yeah. love it. It was that for four days after, my hearing was completely erased. So, right. Yeah. yeah. That and won't happen. That will not happen. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good. What What is the part of this whole experience of this upcoming concert that is just the most exciting to you? Is it your mentor? Is it the space? Is it the chance to perform your new work? Or the, what? what is the thing where you're running around telling people, guess what? I think it's the highs and uh, lows in the musical journey that we're going to tell throughout the entire night. Because I think we're going to access a lot of different emotions and styles and feelings. Um, and I feel like this music is going to make people feel something. It's it's uh, it's very um, emotionally inspired music that I that doesn't tell an exact narrative or exact story. Uh, and so people, I think, can walk away with their own story that they create while while hearing it and experiencing it. How many people? I know I do. When I perform it. Well, that's good. I mean, if if you find something new there every time, then that's this is now we're getting my spiritual philosophy here. But if you can find something new in your work whenever you do it, you're probably in the right place doing the right work. That would be my I have the best job in the world. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. I would think so. <laughs> Who? These days, with with so many young people being pressured, you know, get a job in tech, get a job in who's going into your area of music and creation? Who are the up and coming people that you see and what is bringing them to you? And are they all independently wealthy or do they feel like they can make a living uh, doing what you (laughs) do? No, uh, you don't. Typically, you don't go into music uh, <laughs> in order to become wealthy. But um, I think it's it's people who want to uh, do something creative and have their own artistic voice represented in something unique. Um, because there's, of course, centuries of of uh, history of of music. And uh, there's only a finite amount of notes, right? But there's still, still every single new music creator has a new story to tell and a new way of combining things that um, really speak to people. And I I personally feel like with uh, all the craziness that is going on in the world, um, music is one of those things that we can all um, come to uh, and be brought together by. Um, and I, I feel privileged to be able to do that. And I, I think that's a, a one main reason why a lot of still people are still going into 
the, the creative arts. So a way for all of us to connect as humans. Well, I, I love that answer. And so now that's led me to ask, since you have this Grammy nomination and since you're performing this piece, do you then travel? Where, where are you going? Are you going to take your piece, this piece around? And where are some of the great places that you've had a chance to perform and be in other cultures and hear their percussive work? We we do we get to we get to travel nationally and, and internationally. Um, the last place overseas that we were was uh, was Switzerland earlier this month. Um, I think probably the farthest place that we went away this year was to Hong Kong and had a wonderful um, exchange with percussionists and other musicians there. Um, I before this phone call, I was having meetings with uh, our colleagues over in the Netherlands. Uh, we're going to be bringing. Uh, a different project there in, in February. So um, we really, we're very lucky. We get we get to go uh, to a lot of different corners of our country and, and the world, uh, meet amazing people, and, and share music together. One of the reasons I asked you to say that is for all the parents whose kids are coming and going, I want to play the drums. I want to play. <laughs> I just want them to know, like, you may not... You may not be the next Baron Boy, but you might actually get to go some cool places and, and meet some cool people. Okay, another obnoxious pedestrian question. Oh, this is so embarrassing. I'm asking you all the questions, all the questions where I go, oh, well, you know, come on. How do you even practice hitting a cymbal? Like, so, right. and you sit through the whole CSO and there's the percussionist standing patiently. And sometimes mm-hmm. if I don't like the piece, just because I'm not a nice person, I just sort of figure out how long it's taking him or her to actually stand there before there's something for them to do, which is really right. kind of mean. That's mean, right? That's a mean <laughs> thing to think. But, sir, but in all honesty, like how does, what's involved in the music that you read and the practicing that you do to get to the level that where you are, because you are in the rarefied era of being the best of the best. Uh, well, uh, thanks for, thanks for saying that. Um, uh, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully that's true. Um, but I, I feel like just like any other way of making music, there are some things that are uh, easier about percussion and there are some things that require more practice and refinement. And so one of the things that I love about percussion is that most of the instruments that we play, anyone in the world could produce a sound on it pretty instantaneously. Um, you're absolutely right. Anyone can hit a cymbal and create a sound. Um, much easier than someone trying to pick up an oboe and, and create a good sound on it. Some, some people might not even be able to create a sound right. <laughs> on an instrument like that. Here, take um, this mouthpiece home. Give it two weeks. Come back if you can yeah. do something with it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and so um, the amount of time that we spend on um, – uh, so there's an immediacy, uh, like there's an immediate point of entry, I uh, think, into uh-huh. percussion, which I think makes it uh, more universal in a, in a way. I think it makes it um, – uh, people can picture them themselves doing it a little bit. Huh. Uh, now, at the, the next step up from making a sound on – you, you use the example of crashing cymbals in an orchestra and then creating a good, consistent sound every single time you do it in exactly the right uh, volume and exactly the right rhythm and exactly oh. the right duration, how, how long it rings, oh. um, balanced with the other instruments. That takes you know years of, of experience and refining, um, just like you'd practice anything else, really, uh, any, other, any other skill. 
So um, the, the concert that we're going to be doing, we are running around the entire time. <laughs> okay. So there's, there's Exercise no, um, involved. Ex- you get your steps yeah. in. I got it. Well, you've there's been... no waiting around in the back of the orchestra. Okay. This is your... It's the spotlight is percussion all the time. Give us again yeah. the particulars of where you will be performing and how people can get tickets. Yes, absolutely. Um, we are going to be performing on a Tuesday, December 5th at 7.30 p.m., at uh, DePaul University's Holtschneider Performing Arts Center. And you can uh, get tickets by visiting their website or thirdcoastpercussion.com. Well, okay. I might actually get there, believe it or not. And thank yeah. you. Thank you for being patient with all my obnoxious questions. And They're really, not obnoxious re- at all. <laughs> they really, you really answered them. And I'm so grateful because... You know, I was always embarrassed to ask them because they sound so crass. So thank you for forgiving me and thank you for the work that you do. And thank you for bringing percussion and this particular piece to us here in Chicago on the 5th of December. We're so excited. Thanks for for chatting. All right. Now you've just met Sean Connors, ensemble member of Third Coast Percussion. And you can hear him, as he just said, on the 5th of December. And they've been nominated for a Grammy, which is always a nice pat on the back. I'm Tori Ryder for Joan Esposito. I wanted a few moments just to talk with you and to get your responses. Uh, 773-763-WCPT. Tomorrow, Thanksgiving. Um, are there any, are there any explosive areas you're going to be avoiding during your Thanksgiving? Are there areas where you're just going to have to, you know, agree to disagree? Are there, I could be, I know you're thinking the conflict in the Middle East, but I'm thinking of so many other areas where people just have to play nicely in the sandbox. It's only one day. You can probably do it. But if you just want to share about how it's difficult or painful or tricky, I would welcome your calls or texts, especially your texts, 773-763-9278. That's 773-763-WCPT. We are live, local, and progressive. It's Joan Esposito's show. I will tell you that there have been Thanksgivings over the years where it's been really, really, really tough uh, for people I know to go home to be um, with their families, um, or it's sad, or it's, you know, I've heard it from so many different people. I changed my religion. I can't go home because I'm expected to pray in a certain way, and I don't pray that way anymore. Or I can't go home because I'm clean and sober, and there's a lot of drinking going on, and I don't want to be around that. Or, you know, I can't go home because I don't have a home anymore. Uh, My family threw me out because I'm queer or transgender. There are so many you know, that old literary expression, you cannot go home again. For some people, it's really true. Um, one of the more encouraging stories of being able to stay home was just in the news this week. A group of veterans who had been offered a chance to keep their homes during COVID with a program saying, we're just going to take your mortgage payments and tack them on to the end of your loan. And you won't have to pay them uh, for the next several months, and then you'll just pick up again. Uh, that was supposed to be a program set up for our veterans. And then uh, the VA, either through screwing up or not thinking, uh, said, oh, no, you actually have to catch up now. 
And these poor people, veterans and their families, were about to lose their homes. And I would like to give full marks to uh, Public Radio, which brought the story to the public's attention. And John Tester, who sits on the Senate um, Veterans Committee, a lot of other senators of, of both parties, I believe, stood up and said, this, this is wrong. And now these folks will stay in their homes. They were going into foreclosure over this. They were going to lose their homes. They were going to have possibly Thanksgiving heaven knows where. So I just thought that I would I would ask you if there's something fraught about your Thanksgiving. And uh, I'm still here for the next few hours, and you're going to meet some other interesting people. But I'll be checking in on your emails, I'm sorry, your texts as they come in. Um, for me, Thanksgiving is definitely... It, it, I've made my own family, so I have my own Thanksgiving with my own family that I have chosen. Um, the family that I'm left with by blood is not particularly functional, so so I won't be there. Um, and it doesn't even occur to me anymore that, that that's something I should be sad about because there's so much joy in the family that that I've chosen. There's a lot of love there. Um, I'm lucky to have children. I get one of them. So that is, that's something I wanted to sort of put out to you. I also wanted, uh, just before we get to the news, to catch you up a little bit on what's happening at the border in New York. In case you thought your Thanksgiving commute was going to be hellacious, be glad you're not trying to fly out of Buffalo, New York, or go to Canada. They had, either accidentally or on purpose, not yet clear, a car that was reportedly doing about 100 miles an hour um Run fishtail, run into a barrier at the Rainbow Bridge between Niagara and uh, and New York, and there are two casualties reported. And so far, don't pay any attention to the rumor mill on this one. So far, there is no indication that anything beyond the car blew up. So if somebody's telling you that it was carrying explosive devices, according to the FBI, that's not true. Uh, however. A car can explode, as you've just seen. So all of those border crossings, where I just was, actually, uh, a couple weeks ago, visiting the small cutie in Toronto. We took a little day trip to Niagara. If you follow me on your socials, you can see the pictures. um, That that's all closed right before Thanksgiving, American Thanksgiving. So uh, we'll follow that story for you, as we do here when you get Chicago's Progressive Talk live, local, and progressive. I'm Tori Ryder. It's Joan Esposito's show on WCPT. Hello, fellow progressives. Attorney Tony Moray here. I want to thank all the WCPT listeners who have put their trust in me. I know that nothing is more important to you than your family, and it is an honor to be trusted to help carry out your wishes. Planning your estate can seem overwhelming, but it doesn't have to be. My 30 years of experience will help guide you through this very important process to help preserve your family legacy. Whether it is drafting a living trust or a will, I will be with you every step of the way. In my practice, facts matter, so advertising on WCPT has been a perfect fit. We can get things started if you call me at 847-996-0496. The initial meeting is completely free, and there's no obligation. All it takes is one phone call. My website is morelawoffice.com. That's Moray spelled M-O-R-E-E. As I say, sometimes the first step is the hardest. But all you need to do is call me at 847 996 
Gillette Intimate gives guys a gentle and easy shave. Don't treat yourself like junk. Respect it with Gillette Intimate, the best a man can get. Buy now at a retailer near you. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Terry Ryder. Oh, sweet. It is the day before Thanksgiving, so Joan has taken a couple days off. It's me today and on Friday and on Saturday for Edwin Eisendrath. Thank you so much for for being with us. I hope we're keeping you company on your pre-Thanksgiving journey. I will say that on Thanksgiving, it's always one of my favorite things to do to drive around after dark and look at all the different neighborhoods in Chicago or perhaps where you live, this is true, and see all the different types of people celebrating it's a favorite thing. I recommend it to you. Take a walk or get in your car or take the bus after the after your Thanksgiving dinner and just see all the different ways that different people come to this country and are glad to be here. This is my favorite holiday because everyone can celebrate it who's come here of their own volition. So that's what I had to say about that. Something new is happening at the University of Illinois, Chicago. It was confusing to me, but exciting. And I get to have two people here to explain to you the University of Illinois' first public quantum network, which you can also find online. And there's an animated graphic that will explain it. But it wasn't explained enough for me because this is not science is something I love, but it's not my first language. So welcome, Dr. Paul Quiat and Dr. Gina Lawrence of the project. Uh, please be welcome. And is there another person yet joining us? Or Okay, we have, good, we have t- double the science. Welcome to WCPT. And tell me this exciting news, because it just went live, what, on the 4th of November? That's right. Thank you so much for having us on. This is Gina Lorenz. Um, yeah, so what happened on November 4th is we launched um, the first publicly accessible quantum network. And I can go into that if you like. Yes, but I don't know if yes. you'd like us to introduce I mean, I, yourself. Okay. I would have to say that most people listening are going, a public what? <laughs> so, please. <laughs> yes. So, you know, first of all, what is a network? Um, the Internet is a network. It brings information uh, to our computers. And actually, the way the Internet is shared is using light. Light travels through cables under the ground um, to our homes and businesses. And what we've done is we've taken that light down to the smallest possible bits of light, which are called photons. Okay, so light is made of billions and billions of photons. And when you get light down to those little tiny, the smallest particles possible, they behave in ways that, you know, regular objects or large amounts of light don't. And one particular thing they can do is be entangled. And what that means is, um, you know, if, if I have a photon that's sent to me and let's say that the photons are entangled in color, that means when I look at the photon and find that it's a particular color, the other photon, no matter how far away it is, instant, instantaneously becomes the same color. Wow. And it's that, yeah, yeah. It's called a non-local connection um, because it's, 
you know, we expect things that usually behave locally. You know, you need to push the table to make it move and that sort of thing. Um, but with entangled particles, they can have that connection across distance, no matter how far apart they are. How, and what, what how, are, they, so yeah. how are they doing that? Yeah, so it's, Paul, it's pretty wanna... unusual. Yeah, I'll jump in. So this is Paul Quiat, also from uh, University, I should say University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, not University of Illinois, Chicago. Oh, actually. my mistake. I'm sorry. I'd just like to take nope. the credit for all the University of Illinois here in no Chicago. No problem. We have, we, have, we have good friends up in University okay. of Illinois, Chicago. All right. Shout out, shout out to them. But yeah, so this, uh, this kind of connection uh, that exists between these entangled particles, actually Einstein didn't like it. And in fact, he called it spooky action at a distance. And so if, if it seems like it's more miraculous that it can occur. Yes, in a sense it is. And even Einstein was kind of troubled by it. And in fact, he he didn't believe this notion that the, the, the particles, for example, don't know what color they are, and that it's only the measurement that reveals it and then causes the other particles distantly to be connected. He, he thought that really, although that's all the quantum mechanics says is true, he thought that, well, really, there was some underlying theory. And uh, it was kind of your choice of philosophy, whether you wanted to believe the quantum mechanics was the whole story, or there was some underlying theory. That was kind of your philosophical choice between the 1930s, when Einstein sort of first proposed that, and, uh, and actually 1965, when there was this theorist, John Bell, who said, oh, there's a careful measurement you could do that would, that would tell the difference between those two, the so-called Bell test. And in fact, experiments that did the Bell test on entangled photons, uh, that got the Nobel Prize in physics in 2022. And, and ever like since gold. then, people like me have been trying to understand what what it meant. So, um, okay, this is this is. I want to pause you there because non scientifically thinking people in this case, or people with limited knowledge, might then want to say, okay, if there's no physical connection, it's a function of measurement. This is so ignorant, but you, yeah, this is what ignorant people are thinking, like me. Well, how do they know? How do they know? How does one particle? How does one particle know about the other one? Yes. Or how do we know that they have this? No. Connection? How do the this this implies some sort of sentient quality to those of us who who don't know how it happens? How how do they communicate with each other? That that one has done one thing and the other needs to follow suit. Go ahead, Gina. <laughs> <laughs> that is an excellent question. I don't think we have. The answer, we just know that they are correlated. So we know that when one is measured, the other it has a correlated state uh, to, to the one that was measured. And, um, you know, we can test for it, you know, so that's what the Bell test does. It makes sure that there is no um, hidden connection, no hidden communication happening. And that test has been done over and over since the 1960s. And like Paul said, it got the Nobel, you know, the people who did some of those first um, tests got the Nobel Prize last year. So it's it's still um, very much um, a, a, a point of study for this, physicists to try to understand. You realize that this sounds like the old thermos joke, you know, the old thermos joke? You know, Please. You know, uh, oh, goodness. I'm going to make it short for radio here, but somebody has asks a panel of, of scientific experts to identify the most significant technical accomplishment known in modern times. And one says the light bulb and one says the telephone. And the third scientist says it's the thermos. And, and the moderator says, what, what do you mean? It's how could it be the thermos? And he says, well, it keeps hot things hot, keeps cold things cold. How does it know? 
So, I mean, th- this sounds to a non-scientist like the thermos joke keeps blue things blue, keeps red things red. So, what you're telling maybe me? Maybe I could. Yes, please. Maybe I could. De- maybe I could demystify it. Just okay. Just yes. I'll, I'll I'll try and attempt. So, um, photons come, for example, from atoms. So, yes. an atom, when it decays, can emit a photon. Okay. And uh, it turns out that photons have momentum, and uh, just like. Just like, for example, an, an arrow or a, or a bullet or a bowling ball has momentum if, if you throw it or you shoot it. Okay. And the atom has to recoil in the opposite direction. Just like if you fire a gun, you know, there's a recoil backwards. Or if you, if you throw a bowling ball on ice, you'll get pushed the opposite direction. So when an atom emits a photon and the photon goes off in all directions, the atom has to recoil in the, in the opposite direction. And the photon is going in all directions. And, but the atom always has to go in exactly the opposite direction because you have to conserve momentum. And so that's kind of what's enforcing this connection between the two. Does that imp- I don't know if that's helpful. But, well, it is, it, but-, but it implies actually, and again, forgive me for being non-scientific here, but, but it occurs to me that that wouldn't be an instantaneous uh, function, that that would just be really, 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 really fast. No. Well, the thing is that if they're too, if they're far apart from each other, like the photon is now a hundred light years away from the the atom, right. so it's been traveling for a long, long time. Yeah. And you suddenly go out at night and you see that photon; uh, it disappears everywhere else in the universe because it can only be detected one place. And the atom now suddenly, suddenly is has it acting as though it had been moving away from you for the last hundred years. Huh. So it's not that 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 sort of connection is the instantaneous part. I guess I would say it's instant because I observed it. Yeah, and then uh, okay. the, because momentum had to have been conserved the whole time, the atom had to have been going the other way. Or in the case of the photons, uh, as soon as you measure one, you know what a measurement on the other one would reveal. I'm sort of getting it. I I have to tell you that this is a true confession. My no longer living uncle was an econometricist, and he had this in a very highly regarded one. And he and you and he had this amazing talent to make me understand something for a little while, and and then I would try and think about it again, and I couldn't. So. I think now for a little while and probably for everyone listening for much longer than a little while, they got it. So this is good. So now tell me about this thing that you've built. Right. So, I mean, exactly for that reason, people aren't familiar with these terms, entanglement, the concepts of quantum technology. And, um, you know, coming down the pipeline, we expect more and more quantum technology to be um, you know, more available. And so uh, the vision is we'd like to expose people to these ideas and to also engage them um, in talking about these things, just like you have today, um, to help us not only improve education, um, starting from very young up through uh, college, um, but also to get that feedback loop started with the public to begin um, getting their uh, participation in the formation of quantum technologies. Um, So what we did was we literally connected using fiber optics. We sent these entangled photons from our labs on the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign campus over to a local library, the Urbana Free Library. And um, there at the library, people can now go and interact with those photons. They can choose a measurement. So just like I started talking about 
you know, looking at the photon's color. Um, in this case, we're actually looking at the way the photons wiggle in space. It's called their polarization. People might be familiar with, like, polarizing sunglasses. Mm-hmm. And they're basically choosing how to measure the polarization at the library and checking to see that they indeed are entangled with the photons that we have back at our lab. And so they're doing that same Bell test that tests for entanglement. And in the process of doing that, learning about it, and hopefully eventually, um, you know, coming up with ideas of potential applications and being more involved in the generation of new technologies um, based on that. Well, this is exciting because, as you know, a lot of scientists start young. I think I read recently with the whole AI chat GPT thing that Sam Altman started with his first computer when he was a little kid. So you may be inspiring or creating the next generation of physicists who will be what you're a particular type of physicist, right? I can't just say physicist. That's wrong. No, oh, no it's fine. Perfect. It's fine. We physicist love will do. So, so what has been the response and the feedback from people coming into the library? What does the terminal look like that they, that they're gazing into? Or is that what they're gazing into? Right. Yeah. I mean, the response has been really enthusiastic. We had over 200 people attend the live event at the library. So it was packed. Um, and then uh, since then, People are going daily to the library, and what they're interacting with is three stations. One station that introduces light and photons and polarization. Another station that talks about how quantum particles can be in what's called a superposition, where they're um, in multiple possible states at once. Um, And then measurements, where suddenly they collapse to just one state when the measurement is made out of all those possibilities. And then it kind of walks them through how to do that measurement for entanglement at the library. Cool. So that's what they can interact right now. Yeah. What's Who's your youngest user and who's your oldest user? <laughs> well, we have a photo of a little baby. I don't know how old uh, the baby was, maybe a few months. It's amazing. <laughs> and then um, we actually have another photo showing three generations all talking, learning about it at the event. Um I don't know. Again, I don't know ages yet, but we've certainly spanned three generations, I think, so far. This is pretty exciting. So I'm going to encourage everybody who has or knows anyone who is at school in Urbana-Champaign to like go down and visit them over the Thanksgiving holiday or other holiday and stop by the library where they can check this out. Is anything like this coming to Chicago that you know of? Yeah. Paul, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, so uh, we have plans now to bring other public quantum nodes uh, and other outreach activities in general, uh, actually up to Chicago area and also to, for example, to Batavia. Uh, We just got a large, uh, or part of a large uh, Department of Energy grant, and part of that aspect of that for quantum networking is to bring a a new public node to Batavia. And uh, we're also uh, actually in discussions and trying to set something up potentially in Kankakee. And then uh, eventually we'd also like to make a connection, uh, you know, in in Chicago proper. Uh, We're part of the uh, at University of Illinois here, we're part of the Chicago Quantum Exchange, uh, which also does quantum networking activity. And so, uh, yeah, the hope is to have a much broader uh, diaspora of this kind of information so that lots of people can be exposed to it. Well, if the photons can get here, I'm guessing the node can too. Th- thank you so much for being with us today and explaining this. And it's really exciting. And thank you for putting up with my novice questions because they really helped. And we'll look forward just to checking out the node. Thank you. That's Paul Quiat and Gina Lorenz, both professors of physics, both involved in this quantum network 
in uh, Urbana-Champaign, and as you've heard, it may also be heard soon. It's Joan Esposito's show. I'm Tori Ryder on WCPT. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Tori Ryder. 321, I am Tori Ryder. Don't forget, at 5, you get to drive it home with Patty Vasquez, and you're really going to need her today. Oh, are you going to need her today? Because the roads, oh my gosh, the roads... And the airports. Oh, my gosh, the airports. How, how, if you're stuck, you know, feel free to get in touch. We have a couple of interesting texts from you. I asked you to text about your uh, your Thanksgiving, your family choices, your plans. Um, so this one I appreciate. During COVID, limited air travel and other things at our planet at its cleanest and most peaceful I think that sort of depends on where you were. There were places that were not particularly. But if you look at the planet, perhaps. So many bad actors were kept. I'm going to change his word here or her word here uh, because the word's not nice. Kept confined. Travel was limited. And here's someone who is uh, and, and, and continues. I've always been a neat freak. A guy who started a grocery store cart cleaning service. He was on your station, said 80% of the car, carts were found to have, I'm going to change a word here again, disgusting matter on them. And it was better for people to stay home at Thanksgiving during COVID because people weren't taking risks. I'm paraphrasing him there. I never really thought about how it must be for people who are possibly beyond the neat freak, but but make that, you know, really, in some cases, genuinely phobic. Thanksgiving's got to be just really hard for them. If you are a person who is immune compromised or you are just loath to come in contact with any kind of germ, I mean, here, I just, thanks to this text, I just started thinking about it. You're expected to to go out and, and shop or eat food prepared by people you may or may not know very well and congregate in a smallish group or a large group, perhaps. It could be really fraught with anxiety for people with that kind of an issue. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. I had not considered it. Things also that get considered one year, we we are not vegetarians in our house, but one year we um, were asked to host a family of vegetarians and they really needed a place. And they said, don't worry about it. Even if you're serving meat, we'll be fine. But I thought, okay, that's nice that they're flexible, but... Why not make a vegetarian Thanksgiving? So we did. It went fine. It was delish. Everybody said so. And and even the people in our world who are most carnivorous were not unhappy. They were very... We, we just had more time to devote to other stuff. I guess that's maybe the moral here. If you're not doing one thing, you want to replace it with something else that's positive. If you can't get on a plane on the most traveled holiday of the year... You can, you know, make make being at home more special. So other texts coming in, um, just some happy Thanksgiving texts. Thank you. Love those. 
uh, if you want to participate in that way, 773-763-WCPT, 773-763-9278. Coming up in a few minutes, let me just tell you what lies ahead. You're, we're going we're gonna to sort of do a tribute, in a way, to the late Rosalind Carter, former First Lady. Uh, she and her husband... And, and everyone who has talked about them since they passed, since uh, Rosalind passed away, the former president is on home hospice now. The, the tenderness and the gentleness, um, with which their, their home folks described them was just palpable in every single obituary and interview that I've read. And people in particular appreciated the former first lady for her, uh, her devotion to the cause of, um, supporting people with mental illness and their families. They respected and admired the Carter's marriage, uh, 77 years. Jimmy Carter himself uh, spoke about um, the fact that he felt that uh, his wife, Rosalind, was his, his North Star in all things. He ran things by her. And, and a lot of us really do are, have that kind, if we're lucky, we have that kind of partnership where if we have to make a difficult decision, it's, it's good to have that trusted partner, even if you're not married to the person, even if it's a friend who, who you can really over the years, who knows you well and can help you with those decisions. I thought it was interesting to hear people say, well, you know, their marriage wasn't always perfect early in the marriage without consulting his wife. Jimmy Carter resigned his naval commission and went home to Georgia to look after the struggling family farm. And that all the way back from their posting to Georgia, his wife, who had not been consulted, was fuming. And I just thought, well, well, there's a lesson. Consult your spouse. I, I don't think there are too many people right now who would not consider consulting their spouses but in those days, there was this view that, well, you know, the husband makes the decision and the wife just says, yes, sir. I don't think that that actually is the way most marriages work. But there was a time when a lot, a lot more of them tried to work that way. And I, and reading the various accounts of the um, life of Rosalind Carter, I think there were women a lot like her all over this country and all around the world who quietly make it clear that no matter what society says, there are two of us here and you will consider me. There are two of us here and even if on paper I don't have the same rights that you did do, because keep in mind when the Carters were first married, women couldn't even get credit cards by themselves. They couldn't buy homes by themselves easily. They were not full entities in so many ways. They couldn't make decisions about their health care. They couldn't, in some cases, pay their own bills. It it is it is not without living, you know, it is not outside of living memory. I, I have a friend in radio, just a little older than I am, but she she's a famous Chicago radio personality and she bought her house a little earlier than I bought my first house, uh, but in the years when the year when she bought hers on her mortgage application, it described her as a spinster. So Rosalind Carter made made polite but impressive progress in a lot of ways. 
both just by quietly living her life and also by doing for others. So in a few moments, as a tribute to her, we're going to meet with someone who is carrying on the legacy of both Carters. Uh, One of their great gifts to the world is the Habitat for Humanity organization, which has at least one store and I think possibly more than one in the Chicago area. I shop at one, you know, Tory writer, the environmentalist, inveterate recycler, because I have said on this show before that they're going to write on my gravestone, she never paid retail. You could also write she never bought new, but that wouldn't be quite correct. I'll leave it to you to speculate on which garments I do not buy secondhand. In any case, uh, that'll all be happening in moments. I do want to take a second also because it's traffic and Thanksgiving and things are busy. So I just want to make sure that I single out not just Andy Miles for doing an outstanding job of making the show run, but also Julia Shu, who makes sure that you have fascinating people to meet on the air or wherever you listen to WCPT, Chicago's Progressive Talk. It is the Joan Esposito Show. And it's just about 3.30. This is Chicago's Progressive Talk, 820 AM, WCPT Willow Springs, and online at WCPT820.com, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Suri Ryder. I am that, Turi Ryder, and uh, yes... I've gotten your messages. Yes, you can get my book at your bookstore. Yes, it's published by local uh, Tortoise Books, Chicago Imprint. So, yeah, all that's true. (coughs) And, oh, look at this. I'm using a different mic, so I have to be careful where I cough. (laughs) A little behind the scenes. I'm going to pull the curtain aside for a moment. We had uh, the usual studio microphone uh, become dysfunctional, like some people say, it ceased to function. So I'm using a different microphone. What that means is if I cough, the button that I push so that you don't have to listen to me cough. Have you, have you ever watched divers like dive off a block where they have to just sort of reach as far as they can and land? That's kind of what it looks like now. Sorry, coughed in your ear. Now, um. As mentioned, if you've just joined us, we are paying tribute to the former First Lady Rosalind Carter of Plains, Georgia, who was instrumental in so many ways uh, in, in doing good in the world. And one of those ways was in her good work and Jimmy Carter's good work for Habitat for Humanity. So I thought, in her honor, we would talk a little bit about that project and what it looks like in Chicago, in particular, the ReStore, which has been great for Chicago in so many ways. So I'd like to introduce to you Jen Parks. You're going to meet the executive director of Habitat for Humanity's ReStore in Chicago. Ms. Parks, welcome. You're on WCPT. Good afternoon, Tori. How are you? I am well, and I'm excited to bring you on. I'm sorry for the occasion. I mean, we're all, we are, no matter how long and good a life she lived, it's it's always sad when a quality human being uh, is no longer with us. First, let me ask, is there a personal connection with the Restore in Chicago to the former First Lady? Are any of you in, in personal, uh, were you in personal contact with her? Is this a personal loss for any of you? Well, I can share a couple of things. One is the Carters uh, came to Chicago and built with Habitat for Humanity back in 1986. And they were 
instead of um, going somewhere fancy for their 40th wedding anniversary, they're like, we're going to go and we're going to serve. And that is the life of um, President Rosalind Carter, is the life of service and giving to others. Uh, further, I can share that I, I was really lucky back in the early 90s. I was in Plains, Georgia, and I went to one of President Carter's Sunday school services and uh, um, got to meet both President and Mrs. Carter. They were just incredibly generous. What, what was the service? Did they give this sermon or did they speak? Or were they simply going about their Sunday tasks of teaching? Yeah. So what they, um, they uh, were members of Maranatha Baptist Church, or our members. President Carter is still a member of Maranatha Baptist Church in Plains, Georgia. And after Sunday services, President Carter would lead Sunday school. And people from all over the world would come and to hear him speak. And then following that Sunday school... Um, we could then uh, stick around and meet them, and they would take photos and chat with people, and they're just, just lovely. That really is very generous to do that every week on your Sabbath day, actually, which it was for them. It's very sweet that you recall that. I, I've um, heard a lot of interviews with their neighbors, friends, fellow church members who've said, well, they're they're fully confident that uh, one day they will be together again. So that's that's kind of nice that their faith allows them that security. Let's move to Chicago then and uh, talk a little bit about what Habitat for Humanity looks like here in our metro area and the ReStore, where I shop regularly, by the way, and bring things to drop off regularly. So I'm familiar with it, but other folks are not. Well, first of all, thank you for shopping our ReStore. So uh, just a kind of a general overview, it's Habitat for Humanity Chicago works in Chicago neighborhoods, uh, specifically three neighborhoods, two on the south side and one on the west side. And our focus is around uh, championing healthy, thriving neighborhoods. So we build in those neighborhoods. So if you see people raising walls, volunteers coming out and building, um, our construction teams leads, can lead those volunteers in building. Um, we also have other programmatic work that we do in those neighborhoods all around championing healthy neighborhoods. On top of that, we have Restore, which I'm really glad you mentioned. Restore is uh, our it's a, a place where people take new and used donated furniture, uh, construction materials, cabinets, uh, we have paint, uh, household goods, and we get that all donated to us. And then we then in turn um, uh, clean it up, get it prepped and put it out on our sales floor and people can come in and shop um, with discounted prices. And it's a really great place to come. And and the the, the, the things turn over very quickly. So if you spot something that you really, really like, you kind of have to decide, do I want to take it now or do I want to risk it? It's going to be back next week because things do turn over. But it's a really great place to find amazing quality materials. I just love it. You want some of the things I've gotten there? I'll just tell you if you're interested so people will know. I love that. Yeah. You know, you go to the paint store and the paint is now what, like $40 a gallon or something? And if you're wedded to a particular color, that's one scenario. But if you're not, you can get really high quality paint. What does it typically sell for there? Like 15, 20 bucks, something like that? Yeah, about 20 bucks. Yeah, about 20 bucks a gallon right yeah, now. Yeah, and, and it's it's the same stuff that you pay 40 bucks for in the, in the retail store or the big box store. And it's the same darn paint. It's just, how, how does it get to you? Some contractor or somebody changed their mind or what, how it's the over overrun? What is it when it comes to well, you? Well, we actually... 
Yeah, that's a great question. We actually just recently um, formed a partnership with a, a company that takes used paint and repurposes and gets it back and ready for to be sold on the market and, and alters the color and make really great colors. And you can see little paint palettes when you come in to see what kind of the colors on. You can see the finish on it. And so it's a really great reused material that we've got this partnership on. And we're like, we're helping to keep things out of the landfill, keep good paint uh, available for our customers. So now this, this begs another question. Used paint, most people think is paint chips. What What is used paint? Well, right. So this is paint that has been, you know, there are people who get paint and it can be discarded because it's, they're not using it for a while. So this company takes it in ah. and retints it all, right? So they get it back into good shape. They can retint it. And so it's actually like really fresh colors. This is not paint that has been sitting on a shelf in someone's basement or garage or things like that. This is a company specifically that they are, their focus is on repurposing paint for, for good use again. And so they make it, get it back in good shape. And uh, yeah, the colors are amazing. The quality is amazing. It's a really great product. And it sounds like it's just amazing for the environment. Instead of having the stuff sitting in your basement, it can actually go up on somebody's wall and eliminate, I I gather, assuming they have an environmentally sound method to, to do this, it can be great for the earth as well. Can we give them a little plug? Who are they? It's called Repaint. And if folks want to go to our website, um, you can go to our resource. So it's habitatchicago.org. And there's a, there'll be a, a specific link there for Restore. And it'll, we'll have a, a kind of a posting about Repaint and what they're doing and, uh, and what the product is. This is so cool. All right. So now, now I'm going to go through some other stuff just, just because this worked so well here to tell you all the stuff I bought. Uh, for my house of worship, we were doing a kitchen. We had a new building and we didn't have a big budget. And I got an absolutely fantastic six burner double oven stove. And I think we paid, We got, it was one of your sale days. And so it was marked down more. And I think we paid less than $300 for it and a few hundred dollars to have it moved because we don't have a truck that will accommodate like a big, but you can connect people sometimes. I, I gather with some people who do that kind of delivery, although it's not your function. Um, but we, we had it delivered and then some people in the congregation fixed it up and that stove is in use. And if we bought the similar thing today new, would you like to know what we would have paid for that? I'm afraid of what the number would be. <laughs> $8,000. And our total yeah, expenditure right. on it was, I think, less than 600 yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's And that's the beauty of Restore. Yeah. And, and it didn't get scrapped, which it's a lot of metal. It would have gotten scrapped. Also, for those people who like super cool vintage stuff, oh my gosh, one day, I already have... A Hoosier cabinet, but one day you mm-hmm. had in there the most beautiful Hoosier cabinet. It was so beautiful, and I so wanted to like buy a whole house just to put it in. I took pictures of it and stuck it on my own social network feed so that somebody I knew could give it a home. Because I feel like sometimes vintage pieces, it's not just that you're buying them, it's that you're giving them a home, right? Do people say that to you? That's oh, right. I'm going to give this a home. People come up to the register and say that, do they? Absolutely. And I think that's the great piece about finding vintage pieces, finding pieces. There's, we get designer pieces. You know, people are turning over showrooms and the like, and they, you know, we get designer pieces. We, we run the gamut of the, the different types of uh, design, of, of the various types of design that we get. So, yeah, they give it a new home and to keep it out of the landfill. Yes. And sometimes I have to say, it's just good for the what the heck factor. Um, 
and I, I don't know if you ever feature the what the heck pieces, but I have been known to take special joy in looking at stuff going, what the heck is this? Or who had this in their house? Or, I, you know, there was a time when people thought this was beautiful. Do, do you yourself, I mean, you don't have to specify, but do you go through the, the store with the what the heck factor every now and then? I love walking through the store. I mean, I am personally a shopper like you as well. And there are sometimes I'll walk through and I'm, I'm amazed at the design style that people can have, like the vision and the creativity that people had around design. And yes, sometimes I don't know, but some other people had a vision for that. And they, people pick that up and they say, I can do something with this. It is remarkable. Uh, really, yes. Well, yes. What is the most, what the heck is that? Or what would you do with that? Can you, can you recall an item that stuck in your head like that? I don't know the design style, but what I do remember is one day uh, we had gotten a, a chair that was almost like it was, it, it felt very moon landing-ish. It's kind of like you sit in and you kind of you sit back into an, and encompasses around you, if you will. Wow. Even though there's like a, I know, and it's like almost like you're sitting into a circle and it encapsulates, in, encaps, encapsulates around you. And I don't know what design style that was. And it's just very, very different. It felt very like 1960s, early 70s-ish, um, but it was a really fun look. It's not for my home, no. but I, I found a good home and because um, somebody did come by and, and buy it. And it's a really cool piece. And then I'll bet you there are times where you don't quite know what something is, but somebody says, I know what this is. I, I know who designed this. I know who made this. Does that happen? It does. And one of the things our team does is look that up as well. We try to look that up and provide that information on the sales tag. So people want to know what era it's from or if it's a particular designer. We try to find that out and do that research for folks so that that can put people into a frame of like, okay, this is a style I'm interested in. Oh, that's cool. And you have an active website where you post some of these things or no? Yes, we do. People can find us on, on Instagram at Habitat Chicago. Um, we also are on Facebook, on uh uh, Twitter, X, formerly known as Twitter. Uh, and we just have a new TikTok account, I just learned. So, yes, Habitat Chicago on all the socials and our website will also have links. So, habitatchicago.org. Yeah. If you want to be green and do great things, there are actually two two organizations. We had the other one on, uh, not, well, three that I can name. There's so many groups here in Chicago doing good while keeping. Uh, keeping stuff out of landfills and providing training. There's one that does training in the trades. Speaking of the trades, um, can you speak a little bit about what Habitat, you mentioned there's other programming that Habitat is doing in neighborhoods in addition to building houses. About how many houses are you building in Chicago area at any given time? Well, in Chicago specifically, we're building right now about uh, 13 homes are under various stages of construction, um, both on the south side and two south side neighborhoods, West Pullman and Greater Grand Crossing. We also have many other habitats in the suburbs. So for the suburban listeners, there are habitats all from Lake County all the way through the western suburbs, through DuPage County and all the way down to Will County. And each of those habitats, um, oper- we all kind of operate independently, also all in support of the habitat mission. So work is going on year round in all, ha- in all neighborhoods of Chicago, like all communities um, around the Chicago metropolitan area. And people can definitely plug in, come out and volunteer. One of the things folks get nervous about is, can I actually swing a hammer? I don't do construction. I'm on a computer all day. Yes. Our job is to teach people to how to do the work. And so people come on out and we'll show you what to do, give you the safety briefing, get everybody set up to go for the day, and uh, you'll have a great day. And I, I want to, to ask you a little bit, because you've mentioned people come out, they want to help, they may not know. Do you do training for people who want to do 
more of this kind of work or is it just, I'll teach you what you need to do for the day? Both. So at Habitat Chicago, we do both bringing volunteers in. We also are in the early formation stages of a workforce development program. So we're in pilot phase right now where we're looking to, we know in general in home construction, we just need more people in the trades. Uh, A lot of folks are in commercial construction, which is great. We need more people in residential construction. So to that end, we've uh, started the development of a workforce development program to start getting people trained up in construction and using our construction site as that location and bringing in workforce development trainers to help get more people trained up. I love that. We've had women in the trades on the show here to talk mm-hmm. about their efforts. And, I, and I've uh, spoken a lot with the um, the rebuilding warehouse in Evanston, which trains young people to go into the trades. So it's good to see that Habitat is, is doing more of a workforce project with that, too. That'll be great. Now, I know that something unusual about Habitat is that if you're going to go if you're going to live in a Habitat home, you're going to have to help. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah. So every so one of the things is we all, we not only build the homes, we also work with find the buyers, qualify the buyers for our home buying program. And those home buyers are doing a couple of things. One is they're helping to build their home and their neighbors' homes. In Chicago, they have to put in a minimum of 200 hours on our construction site, volunteering with us alongside other volunteers other home buyers and helping to build their home and others. They also have to go to classes and do home ownership preparation. As we all know, buying a home is a really great, um, it's a great achievement, but also there's a lot to learn about owning a home. I know I've had that in my own journey of buying a home and oh, I need to learn yeah. how, to, how to do that. Yes. yes. So we want to make sure that everybody's ready to go. And so we have the construction component and then we have the, um, the education around what it means to be a homeowner component. And once they complete all of that uh, and the home is completed, then we sell them the home. And they have a mortgage with Habitat for the next up to 30 years. And now the mortgage rates are high. So how is that affecting your mortgage that you're issuing to people? Have those rates gone up or are you able to subsidize them and keep the rates low? We provide what we consider a subsidy. So one of the things is we are the lender, Habitat in this case in Chicago, we are the lender. And so we are the ones that provide the affordable mortgage and uh, in and and that rate is kept very low so that the buyer's never paying more than 30% of their gross monthly income towards their home. And that's the definition of affordability is that no one should be paying more than 30% of their gross income towards where they live, whether they rent or they buy. And so we cap it at that. And then they pay us back over those 30 years. And that money is then funneled right back into our program to help us build more homes. Tell me about what the people who work for, learn about, and move into Habitat homes have to say about their experience? Yeah, uh, I will say they always say it's very hard and it's long, but it's worth it. We are not a quick fix. It's an investment in neighborhoods. It's an investment in long-term affordable home ownership. And so over and over again, the message we hear from our our, uh, buyers who become homeowners is that they, uh, you know, they didn't always know if they could get do it, but the the overarching message is, and they say this to their other home buyers. It's a shared message amongst to future home buyers: is stick with it. It is worth it. You will have a great place to live in a great home in a solid growing neighborhood, and you will be off and going for your future. Uh, but it is a major commitment. People are working. You know, they're taking care of their families. They have other commitments in life, and so to say for a good you know ten to eighteen months, I'm going to really commit to my future 
through volunteering and through going to classes to getting an affordable home, that is a major commitment. And so those um, the folks over and over again are are uh, focused on that long-term goal and, uh, and, and say it's worth it. Well, I w- I'm glad to hear that. If you're just joining us, uh, you are in conversation with Jen Parks. She's the executive director of Habitat for Humanity Restore here in Chicago. Uh, we just got a text. Where is the restore? Would you give the address, please? Yeah, 6040 North Pulaski, just north of, off of Peterson. Yep, right by... 6040 North Pulaski. If you're a birder, it's right near the Audubon. <laughs> big property there and uh it's it they have parking and they have drive-through if you want to drop off stuff and the website again for people you can go to habitatchicago.org all of our information on restore and our program work is all there so let's talk a little bit about the the religious component and how that works because i know that um the former president and first lady, which is the reason we, we have, we are lucky to have your presence here today, the Carters. Um, they were people of great faith and they began this in some ways as an expression of their faith. But I understand that people of all faiths participate and that is not necessarily, you know, there's no doctrine involved here and that it's a bridge building experience. Could you speak to that? No, that's exactly right. So, so Habitat Humanities Foundation is a Christian foundation. Our founders were very focused on uh, using uh, this mission to express the love of Jesus. And we are not an organization that is a proselytizing organization. We want everyone, people of all faiths and people of no faith, to come to this mission. The opportunity we have together collectively as a city, as a a community, is to make sure everyone has a decent place to live. And that is what we're driving towards. So it came out of a Christian foundation. That That is our roots. And we want everybody involved because one thing we can all agree on is that everybody deserves a decent place to live. And that's the home. That's the neighborhood. That's our community. And so that's what we're all about. That's lovely. So would you say a variety of faiths are represented in your efforts there or or no? Absolutely. Yeah. We have people of all, we have people of faith, people of Christian faith. We have people who from the Jewish community, we have people who are Muslim. We have people who don't practice any faith and all are welcome and are represented in the work that we do. That's actually quite lovely. I have to ask you to circle back to your um, home buying school, basically for homeowners. Um, what are some of the things that people, when they're going to be homeowners, they, they go to the class and they go, what I have to do that? What What are some of the things that people have learned how to do that, you know, when you live in an apartment and you call the landlord, you don't have to think about doing. And when you're a homeowner, you do. And they're kind of astonished. I think the interesting thing when, we, when I talk with home, uh, some of our buyers is, you know, we all, when, we, when we, we're in an apartment or we buy a home that's already built and everything, we don't see behind the walls. We don't know what goes all into building a home. So our home buyers actually get to see the home go from the foundation all the way up, you know, and see all the different phases. And so to be able to get to see behind the scenes of what does it take to put the drywall on? What does it take to put the flooring down? What does that involve? And I get to, and I get, and they get to pick some of these things. They get to pick their flooring. They get to pick what type of countertop finish and what type of cabinet finish. And so to be able to have some choice and stuff, but also see like, what's the work of putting that in so that when they're, if they need to change something out in the future, they have more knowledge in which to act upon. And that's a very good place to be as a homeowner, because then you're like, 
like, because again, as being a homeowner, it's a lot of responsibility. We all have to take care of our homes. And so that um, having that insight into what went into building a home allows them to be more prepared for the future state when they have to repair something or replace something. That's interesting. That I w- That's a different answer than I thought you'd give. I thought you might have people say, you mean I have to get up on a ladder and clear the leaves off the gutter? You, you mean I have to chop the ice away from the downspout? You mean I have to? Um, but you said something very different than what I was expecting, which is that once you know what goes on, to use an auto metaphor, under the hood, then you know why you have to have an oil change. Then you know what you know what it means if your car is making a particular noise. And you may not be an expert, but at least you can speak, at least you're aware of, of what can go right, what can go wrong, what might be needed, uh, what that funny sound means if, if you're That's right. right. So um, let, let me ask you a little bit about green building. Are the homes you're building changing in style or construction because of environmental concerns? It's something we keep look, taking a look at. Um, we, we definitely build a very green home in the sense that it's, we don't build huge, huge homes. They're good size, but they're not huge, huge. So we keep them very um, tight in, in terms of energy efficiency and the type of insulation we put in and the mechanicals we put in. We are starting to look at what might we do as things evolve around uh, availability into more green elements, you know, solar or uh, uh, on hot water heaters that are on demand, water heaters and the like. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity coming down the pike with um, additional investments that are coming down from the federal level into uh-huh. states and yes. communities that we can then start to take more advantage of. One of the things that we always have to think about is our home buyers are of limited income. Right. And so we want to make sure that they have access to good quality uh, replacement materials that are on the market that are available now. And we're starting to see a change happen, but that has not always been the case. So on-demand, on-demand water heaters are becoming more available, but historically they've, you know, the traditional water heaters been what we've, we've been doing. So we're starting to make a shift, but we're making it very carefully and thoughtfully um, to make sure our home buyers have access to, to um, future, if they need a replacement item in the future, it's going to be available and it's affordable to them. So I'm guessing there's a lot of back office then stuff that goes into this where, where you've got a whole team of people not on the job site, but elsewhere figuring out we have access to these counters, we have access to these appliances, we have access to this flooring provider. Is a lot of the stuff that goes into the house uh, donated or do you purchase everything or does any of the stuff that comes into the restore go back out and find a home in your houses? That's a great question. So most of our, everything is new that goes into the home building process for us. We do have some, uh, some products that we're able to get donated um, and we take advantage of that. So for example, Whirlpool has been a solid donor to Habitat Humanity, not just in Chicago, but across the United States for years and years now. And they donate a refrigerator and a range to every Habitat home. So that's a cost savings to us. And we're able to then put those um, into every single home. And there's a couple other items like that that um, are donated on a regular basis, which is, which is so helpful to us. Um, one of the reasons Restore came into existence many years ago was because we were getting calls from people who wanted to donate items for our home construction. But because the materials are so varied and we can't always plan for that, we thought, well, let's figure out an alternative way to put these good materials to use. And Restore was born out of that idea. Uh, we can't use it in construction. And these are still good materials. Let's create this this restore that we can still provide this back to the community um, at reduced prices. That's a good, and and anyone who doesn't believe it is invited to come and look at my 
shower. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which is built with beautiful tile from the ReStore. Thank you so much for being willing to talk about this. And I, I'm sorry for the loss of the Carters. Uh, well, not, I shouldn't say Carters. I think of them as an entity of Rosalind, Rosalind Carter. And of course, we're, we're wishing the best for the former president. And I think what you're doing, it would be an honor and always was an honor and a credit to, to her and to him. So thank you very much, Jen. Thank you so much, Tori. Appreciate it. That's Jen Parks. She's the executive director of Habitat for Humanity's Restore in Chicago. If you want more, just Google Habitat for Humanity Chicago. It'll all come to you. It's Joan Esposito's show, an hour away from Patty Vasquez. More to come, WCPT Chicago. Alexa, play WCPT. WCPT from TuneIn. Joan Esposito, live, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Terry Ryder. Your friendly stranger in a black sedan. Hop inside. It's Joan Esposito's show. I am Tori Ryder. If you want to find me, it's spelled T-U-R-I, Ryder like the truck, and I'm on most socials. No TikTok for me. Uh, but... You're welcome to correspond or follow. And yes, that's the podcast is mine, too. And I'm welcoming you to all of it. You have probably been following in the news because you are a WCPT listener and you care about these things. Just exactly what is going on at uh, Columbia College in Chicago. Um, There has been a lockout there according to the news today what's really going on it's hard to get a handle on it we're gonna we're gonna get the inside look at it right now i'd like to introduce you to andrea diamond she is a bargaining team member former chicago federation of i never get the acronym right i'll let her do it welcome andrea thank you for joining us well, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Um, tell me, first of all, what does CFAC stand for? Because I get it wrong. Columbia Faculty, What what is it? That's it. Just Columbia Faculty Union. Okay. Let's just call it that. Columbia Faculty Union. What is going on over there? I know so many Columbia College graduates. You place them all over our industry. Um, I, I hate to tell you how long I remember having Columbia College on my radar screen, but what <laughs> happened, what precipitated this, and where are we now? Well, uh, what happened is um, our union's contract was up in August, and we've been in negotiations since the spring. And right before the fall semester began, the um, Administration said that they were cutting 50 courses from the fall and a further 300 courses from the spring, which, of course, since we're in negotiations, they couldn't just do. That's an unfair labor practice, that unilateral decision making. Um, And so we filed the ULP and then we tried to stay in communication. We were in negotiations, continued negotiations, but they would not um, they would not speak to us about how those decisions were made. They said that they were in financial crisis and they were trying to balance the budget or actually save $2 million out of wow. a $20 million deficit, wow. which they, which first of all, they're not going to save off the most marginalized faculty. We don't make anything near that. Um, but they also were doing that at the expense of the quality of education that we offer. They were going to cut many, many courses that students take. They were they cut courses that were fully enrolled. Um, and they also were going to raise class sizes. 
And because of the kind of work we do and, and the way that we teach hands-on, students come to Columbia for small classes and the opportunity to work one-on-one with um, working professionals in all of the fields. Yeah, that's kind um, of been your so, mo since before, since yeah. back when you were the Columbia School of Broadcasting. the The hook for people was if you come here, people who actually do this work are in class with you to teach you how to do it. And it was such a good idea, as I understand it, that it it grew and prospered. As an outsider who's down in the South Loop regularly, where you are still based, I think, I'm seeing all kinds of signs that you are growing, buying property, adding dormitories. Um, you, you've been ranked um, nationally, I think, number one or number two for people who want to do music composition for film and television. It looks like a, a really prosperous going concern from the outside. Have they opened their books to you? Is there some reason why what it seems like on the outside isn't what's on the inside? Well, they have not opened their books to us. They won't show us anything to, to prove, A, that there is a crisis. And then, of course, Dr. Kim, the president, recently did a video message where he said, no, we're, we're, uh, we're sound. We are financially sound. And that was because students and families are beginning to panic because um, we've been on strike for now nearly four weeks. We're actually we're in the fourth week. We're about to hit the record for the longest adjunct strike in history. Um, and this, of course, is deeply damaging to both our experience, um, obviously, with the institution, but our students. I mean, it's very, very challenging um, for them to not to get the education that they came for. And then, in, as of this week, the, the administration has been trying to replace us. Um, so of course, they can't. We, we teach a 1,000 courses. Um, so they've been trying to say that they're going to give students value for their money. And this was only because lawsuits are beginning to be brought or spoken of. Um, and students are talking uh, about oh, yeah. Anything. If you have so a student in there and all of a sudden the student isn't getting any live instruction in the areas where they intended to focus, I suppose a parent could come back and say, hey, wait a minute, you're still charging me the same, but my kid, what well, what does this look like? And, and by the way, we are lucky to be joined by your um, fellow negotiator and uh, faculty member, Diana Valera. Um, Diana, welcome. Thank you for, for being able to be with us as well. You're both on the bargaining committee, right? You both, and do you both teach there? Remind me. Yes, and thank you for having us. Hi, Andy. Um, and so, Hi, yeah, I'm in the photography department. Um, I'm the chief negotiator. Um, I just got out of a bargaining session. Um, and, Andy, um, you can introduce the area of you teaching. Yeah, I teach in the theater. I te- I'm a theater director, and I teach in that department, theater department. Yeah, I understand you've directed at Victory Gardens, which came to an unfortunate and I'm oh, sorry to report. There's a heartbreaking story there. I, was a, yeah, I, I almost was there hate to. Quite a few years. I almost hate to say Victory Gardens. It's just yeah. depressing. But um, we, we will we will keep our focus on Columbia College for right now. <laughs> um, are there any Diana? As, since you just came on the line, are there any breakthroughs that you need to report right away to us? Since we have you, any big news? Well, I'm on a caucus. Uh, looks like it's going to be a longer caucus, which is um, why I was able to. To get on, um, no, I wish I did. Uh, we um, are surprised that they're actually meeting with us because usually we can't um, even get them to come back to the table. Um, and um, there, there's a flight. There actually is one area that they made some movement, and that's with regard to 
um, uh, it's it's not health. Well, it is towards health insurance. They're they're starting to move towards the possibility of um, some type of access to um, health coverage. It's not coverage, but it's um, and I can't remember what it's called. But it's basically it's putting money into an account so that we can access ah the um, health health savings accounts. I think those are called. It if yeah. if I have that right, it's interesting that you would pick that particular topic and say there's motion because you just reminded me of something. Uh, my book came out just before COVID and was published here in Chicago by Tortoise Books and several of the people who write there teach, I believe, at Columbia and, and through this I met a bunch of writers and teach teachers of writing and it was interesting because the word gets around which schools with adjunct professors make healthcare available and those schools use that more, almost more than um, money to attract some of their faculty. So I'm guessing that this would be in Columbia College's best interest also to, to offer you something like this so that so that people who are adjuncts might say, you know, it's not so much the paycheck that I need, it's to have health care. Is that an accurate perception? Absolutely. That's, that's accurate. Um, yeah, adjuncts have a difficult time. Most don't, many don't have access to health care and um and we're seeing more and more of that in the Chicago area. So that certainly would be incentivizing and attracting adjuncts. So let me ask you then, you mentioned briefly that the parents were calling and threatening to sue and getting upset. It seems to me that the, the faculty, and if you're just joining us, two members of Columbia College's bargaining committee are with us now, Andrea Diamond and Diana Valera. Um, and, and one of the things that... Um, it seems like you would be enlisting, and I'm, I'm guessing that you have, and if you have, I want to hear about it, that you would be enlisting the students and their parents who are paying in your efforts. Are, are, you, are you engaged with the parents of the students, and if so, how, and, and how's that going? The parents are engaged with us. Okay, the parents come to you. What is? I wouldn't think so. I mean, as a person who just finished paying for my younger kid to finish at university, uh, I can see how that would happen. Um, tell me what that looks like. I, I'll start with uh, Andrea said that they were reaching out to her. So, Andrea, you go first. What does that look like? Well, they're reaching out to us. What What, what is happening, and, and Diana will have, I'm sure, much more to say about this, is we have, of course, worked with our students because of we, we're their teachers. We want to give them what they came for. And their parents, of course, are very concerned. And so what we have done is 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 made it possible for them to be in communication with us with some fairly regular uh, Zoom meeting so that we can let them know what's going on and they can ask questions and let us know what their concerns are. How big is the student body now, Diana? Um, it's, it's around 6,700 students. That's not small. That That's a considerable number of students. And, and uh, how many now um, commute versus living on campus? How many live on what well, your campus is, the city? So how are those distributed, commuting versus residential? Yeah, I don't have the exact numbers, but I know that, um, you know, we um, have, certainly have over 30% of, of our students come from the Chicago public school system, um, which, you know, I think is important. Um, we have, um, Andy, I don't know if you have those numbers readily available, but we, we do have quite a bit that are represented in the Chicago communities that, um, 
you know, our first generation students, um, you know, a, a lot of the students that, that come to Columbia are often um, working class families. Um, we do have some international students, but I don't have those demographics threats. The reason that I asked, asked that question was because it, it, I notice you have more and more dorms there, and I would imagine that the city itself and the local merchants would feel it if the kids aren't going to class and that they might be enlisted to pressure the administration mm-hmm. a little bit. Is that happening? I don't know uh, local merchants are. Are they? Yeah. I'm not sure, but I know that um, the restaurants nearby are are starting to do that for sure. Um, we noticed that, but then they're very supportive. Um, but beyond that, um, certainly the communities, the the um, faith based communities, um, things like that are definitely, and and of course the the politicians. We had a lot of support from politicians, including yeah. our mayor. Um, pushing back. Well, yes. yeah, and, and his work with the teachers union, of course, would make that a natural pairing for you. I, I can't yes. say how many times in my industry, I've, you know, we've had our interns come from Columbia, our um, everything, our talent, the Chicago media is full of people who are Columbia graduates. Are the alumni getting involved? Are they saying, you know, forget it, we're not giving you any gifts or doing any fundraising unless you support the professors who supported us. Is, is that helping? Is that happening? I'll, I'll give that one to Diana. Yeah, that's starting to happen, and we would definitely want to get more outreach, and we appreciate this program to in order to do so, because when they are hearing about it, they're very upset. Um, and so, and they should be. And as you described, um, it's an incredibly vibrant community. Um, it's why we're on strike, right? We love this community. Um, we can't stand seeing what's, what's happening to it. The students are upset. The parents are upset. Um, and, you know, that's, and I think the alumni are absolutely starting to get involved. We can, we need to expand that um, even further, um, including like donors. Uh, we do know that there's, a big gala that's going to be taking place on November 30th. Um, well, and, uh, I'm, I'm guessing there will be a picket line around that. I'm guessing that gala may not go as planned. <laughs> is that accurate? That's accurate. Yes, it is. So um, that, oh, I have so many questions still. But l- let's go to um, uh, Diana. What is your theory about what's really going on here? Usually, the words greedy administration are thrown around a lot, but what do you think is actually really happening on the other side of the fence? You know, we've been very concerned because it doesn't make any logical sense if it was what's typically happening, even with this corporate takeover in higher ed that we're seeing. And it's such an extreme that it's running programs on the ground for programs in the ground. And then when we start seeing um, who's sitting on the, the board of trustees. Um, and then we start very concerned. Um, and, and so Wait, we stop, been- stop right there. Can you be more yeah. specific? Who came, who showed up and made life difficult? Be specific, please. <laughs> um, well, there's two people in particular that we've been looking into um, and they both have connections with um, Andy. Do you remember exactly what, um, what it is? is the company? That's just the company, and they own Phoenix. Is that correct? They own private. They're they're, they're involved in private. Oh, uh, you sorry, mean the uni- excuse me, the University of Phoenix folks? Is that what you're talking about here? 
There are yeah. private equity. Wait, wait, wait. Andrea, first. Vestra is a private equity firm, and they are they have interest in uh, for-profit educational organizations, the including la- is- universities. So, so Columbia College. I thought they were non. I, I, forgive my ignorance. We are not for profit. The, oh, we are not so for profit. you're a nonprofit, but you are possibly being taken over by a for profit corporation. Is that accurate? That's, we have that's no accurate. idea. This is a question. <laughs> ah, this that's is our, a question, right? That's our concern. Yeah. I see. So, okay, now now it's starting to be clear. So let me reiterate for those just joining us, the Columbia College faculty are on strike and uh, the adjuncts in particular are being, in my opinion, horribly treated and, and justifiably complained. And this is where it's ended up. Now, it turns out that on the board, the for-profit folks from the University of Phoenix and the company that holds that investment, have they've got seats on your board now? Is that what happened? And how did they get on that board in the first place? I'll give that one to Diana, since you're leading the negotiation committee. Why why don't we start with with you there? Well, a lot of investigation going on in that whole board decision. Um, And and how did the seats happen, including... There's a new chairman of the board that's come on recently. Um, and, you know, I think, um, Andrea, correct me if I'm wrong, but we believe he also has um, ties to this this group. And so, um, that, you know, and it just he just came on in the summer. Um, it's it's misconception. Um, but we are looking into things such as when you're doing this kind of restructuring that, of course, they, they make two weeks before the semester began, um, you know, we believe that there needs to be some minutes taken by the Board of Trustees. They still have a, for, a fiduciary duty to do so to their stakeholders. Um, we've asked an information request. We've filed charges. We've said, where's, where's any written anything? And, and so far, the college has not produced anything. Um, and we are looking into um, all sorts of avenues to figure out how can we get these documents? And we do believe there's a, a fiduciary duty so that we can, you know, and why are they holding it? You know, why are they not providing this material? If there's some sort of nefarious conduct or even just sort of unpleasantness going on and it fringes on a legality or an illegality, where would you go to have some sort of recourse if if they're in violation of open meeting laws or if they're in violation of fiduciary laws, do you have to do that privately or is this a, an instance where you could actually get the criminal justice system involved? We're looking at all uh, at every avenue. I know that our attorneys are looking at everything. We've even um, reached out to the attorney general's office. We're looking at a possibility of the Department of Education getting involved, especially with accreditation issues, um, because you can imagine when you have a faculty member who um, supposedly takes over 54 sections of a course, well, we know that's not possible. So we are looking at um, accreditation. We're looking at, um, you know, all possibilities in in what exactly is going on in Columbia and, um, and who can get involved to to hold them accountable. Wow. You have a lot on your plate. This is huge. Who is providing the structural support for this effort? Who who are the attorneys? Who is the, you know, the union I'm sure has some. What, what does that look like? 
our, I mean, we're very fortunate. We have um, Robert Block is our attorney. Um, he's also he's been a, he's been an attorney and practicing for 40 years now in the Chicago area. Very well respected nationally for labor law. Um, he's also the one of the attorneys, the main attorney, I believe, for um, Chicago Teachers Union. Um, so um, we're very fortunate to have at the bargaining table with us. Um, and he, he also um, is an attorney for our parent union, which is the Illinois Federation of Teachers and American Federation of Teachers. We're working very closely with our unions, um, so we have um, the support from a lot of different people. I'm glad to hear that. I'll just give you an anecdote about um, the union lawyers. I had dinner once with a, a husband and wife, friends of ours, and he's a big civil rights lawyer, argues in front of the Supreme Court. And uh, he was giving some speech about how, you know, the best lawyers are, you, you can't take these nonprofit people. They're not really as good as the people who make the big bucks because the people who are really good, you know, making the big bucks. And I'm listening to this. I mean, he was a friend, but also of the opposite political party for me. I'm listening, listening, listening. And I said, well, what about the labor lawyers? They seem pretty sharp to me. And he stopped for a minute. And he said, with the exception <laughs> of labor lawyers. <laughs> yeah, those labor lawyers, they're pretty smart. So, um, yeah, I, I think you, you're well represented here. How, how are the faculty managing without the money that they usually get from teaching classes? What, what, is, what are some of the stories and how are they getting along? And what can people do to support them? Well, I'll tell you, there are, I mean, as you know, we are, as adjunct, many adjunct work many jobs teaching at various institutions or because we're all artists teaching at other kinds of gigs as well, both in our fields and outside. Um, but, but being a month out of work and soon to be two paychecks out of work, that's very challenging for many of us. We're on the picket line. We're holding our strike line. Um, but as we go into the holidays, it truly is a stressful time. People are hustling. You know, we do have a, we do have a strike fund. Um, and, we would be very, very, very appreciative if anyone would care to help us out because there are people who are facing hardships. Because what of what it. is where? Where would they find that strike fund? Do you have a website? Do you have a, a GoFundMe? What does that look like if people want to help with your strike fund? Where should they go? We do have a GoFundMe, um, and there are many things you can find out about us on CFAC resources besides. Um, including our GoFundMe, but it's a GoFundMe for, for is it called CFAC Strike Fund? And that's spelled, I think that's the actual name, is that correct? C-F as in Frank, C as in Chicago, F as in faculty, A as in all about it, and C as in, I don't know, Calico Cat. Columbia. Columbia. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> there you go. So, yeah, if they just Google that strike, they will be directed to your um, fundraising page for the strike fund. What kinds of things are you helping to pay for for striking faculty? Is this come down to rent or food or what? We're yeah, talking about so dire need. It's going to be different. Okay, but it's going to be different. And who's uh, managing that for you? Your your bargaining committee is obviously busy. That's another way that people can get involved or your business faculty or who? We have different faculty that are on this committee that are more um, rank and file, and our treasurer is also involved in it. And um, and we're starting to get – it is reaching a point, obviously, in, in four weeks where 
some of our faculty, I mean, they're staying strong, but it's the reality. We're going into the holidays and we do have some faculty that have let us know that, um, you know, it, they're not able to pay rent. Um, single parents that are starting to not be able to make ends meet. We even, you know, of course, have, we do have some faculty who have expressed concern because they're having to spread out their medication. Oh, boy. You know, uh, yeah, yeah it's, that's it's, not good. Well, okay, so I'm glad we gave folks that information because as you listen, you may want to help these people. Many of them are artists and they, they write, they perform, they take pictures, they direct. All the things that make Chicago a great place to live, many of these alumni have a hand in that and the faculty for sure. So thank you both for being on WCPT with me today. I really appreciate it. And good luck. You've been hearing. Thank Di- you for your time. Oh, you're welcome. You've been hearing Diana Valera, Andrea Diamond, both faculty at Columbia College here in Chicago, both on the negotiating committee. Keep following the strike. We'll keep following it for you here at WCPT Live Local What's and Progressive. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Surrey Ryder. It is very good to be here. Joan will be back Monday. I'm here for Joan um, the day after Thanksgiving. On Thanksgiving, it's uh, best of day here at WCPT. I'm also here for Edwin Eisendrath on Saturday. So we have lots more opportunities to get together, or you can find me on X, formerly Twitter, or Facebook. You can be my friend. Um, and yes, I'm the person who wrote the book and has the podcast. I get that question a lot. Yes, it's me. Uh, and yes, that's my German Shepherd on the cover of the book, too, in that graphic. So uh, just about Thanksgiving, many people traveling, many reports on the safety of the roads, safety of the airports, um, many follow-up stories about the accident or perhaps not an accident on the Rainbow Bridge between the U.S., uh, Buffalo, and Canada. But most of us, when we get on the CTA, figure, well, you know, that's safe. Well, we thought that, mostly, until the Yellow Line crash last week. 38 people were injured. Let me try that again. Injured. And two more lawsuits were filed today to help us understand what exactly is going on in that investigation We're going to turn now to uh, Joseph Sweeterman. He is professor of transportation at DePaul. It's been quite the DePaul day today. Welcome. Is it doctor or professor? What what do you prefer? Yeah, fine. Yeah, professor is just fine. Okay, professor, welcome to WCPT. (laughs) Uh, First of all, I'm glad that you could do this the day before Thanksgiving, and I'm assuming you are not riding the CTA while we speak. I am not. I did go by the accident uh, a few days ago, though, and it was uh, quite a thing to see. Oh, really? They haven't cleared it up yet while they investigate? Is that How long does it usually take before they actually clear up something like that? It may well be uh, cleaned up now, but the National Transportation Safety Board really uh, insists on coming without sort of predetermined uh, conclusions and wants to just start from the basics and they'll dismantle parts of the car and look at the braking system. So uh, that process is well underway. And uh, fortunately, only the uh, yellow line has been disrupted. But boy, that's a, a 
tough spot for an accident. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's the one where if, if you're unfamiliar with the north, the red, the red line, purple line, yellow line um, nexus there, um, that, that's been my line for years, not the yellow line, but I used to use what, what is now the purple line. And now I'm, I'm just off Wilson on the red line. So I, I uh, ride that regularly. And, uh, and it seemed like they'd been really upgrading the technology. That, that's what it looked like to the casual rider. But from what we're hearing today, they did not. What's the latest and what's behind it? Yeah, I think you've hit it correctly that, uh, you know, the L line is somewhat of an anomaly on the system. It's an old uh, inner city, inner urban line they call it. It used to go all the way to Milwaukee, and it's kind of designed for high speed. So there's just two stops between Howard and Skokie, and the Oakland stop is fairly new. So it goes, you know, several miles without stops through, uh, you know, kind of up on this high embankment. So it really picks up speed. I mean, it goes 55 miles per hour for a considerable distance. Wow. And then it comes into this, yes, yeah, super congested uh, uh, Howard Yard where they have storage facilities and a balloon track to turn around trains. And so things get a little bit, uh, you know, visually chaotic in there. But why the uh, motorman, the conductor, uh, you know, driver of the train didn't didn't stop or get the warning about this parked snow vehicle is still a bit of a mystery because, um, you know, the signal system should reflect there's a hazard in the way. Well, I was hearing, and again, this is just kind of, you know, you see it on the news and you don't know how true it is, but there were reports that passengers said that the uh, driver of the train seemed distracted. Um, I, I've ridden CTA trains where it seemed like the driver of the train was not fully attentive. Doesn't happen often, but every now and then you'll see somebody driving a train. You can see through those little smoky windows between you and them. And you'll see somebody on their phone every now and then. What's what's the policy about paying attention uh, while you're driving? Yeah, really, it's uh, the federal government's really stepped that up. It's a terrible Amtrak accident in California. Well, they had one in. Uh, they had one out east. Was it Connecticut? Where likewise, the person was on. Oh yeah, yeah, on the phone. So, right. uh, what what is the policy for CTA motor people? What what are they required to do? Like none, nothing ever, or yeah, do... that's, yeah, that's well, you're certainly not uh, allowed to be on your phone while the train is in active service, and that's uh, you know it's a big no no. Uh, but we have noticed since the pandemic. Uh, just workers seem more fatigued in all, all kinds of travel. We're going to have bus drivers and truck drivers and pilots and so forth. And there's a lot of factors here. I mean, some are working second jobs, so, you know, they get the rest time. They go pick up work elsewhere. We don't know anything about the driver here. Uh-huh. But uh, it does seem that that some sort of a reaction, slow reaction and appropriate uh, deceleration may be a factor here. Um, you know, CTA trains don't take nearly as long to stop as, say, a big freight train. Uh, but that that arrangement there is a little tricky with the underpass and so forth, and and boy, uh, it didn't just narrowly miss it. It hit this other train at uh, some pretty high speed. It hit the train, or that? What is the snow plow that it hit? Is it a train with a plow on it? Is I'm thinking of the old Wiley e. Coyote, you know, with the two people with the <laughs> lever up and down. What exact? I'm sorry, I'm making you laugh, and you're supposed to be a serious guys. <laughs> Feel free. You know what I'm talking about, right? The Road Runner with the things on the track with the 
with the oh, lovers. I, I do, the, yeah. Right, I, I, exactly. I grew up with that. That was one of uh, my favorites. Well, but, that's uh, what, what, okay, I'm <laughs> confessing, and this belie, this uh, betrays my age, but I, I'm confessing that when they said, oh, yeah, they had the snow plow unit on the track, I thought, oh, well, that must be some manual-powered thing that they push up and down, but not? What is it that they hit? No, and it's a big rotary snow plow, and, um, you know, the odd thing about this is... Wait, it's that a, it's a rotary... Hold on, hold on. Rotary snow plow on the front of a of a train? That's exactly right. Holy smokes. Apparently, yes. yeah, we have heard, it's just a single car, but it's uh, almost like a... Uh, almost like a snow plow on the rail, so to speak, but it has a rotary. And uh, But there were apparently a number of people on the train, on the car, like five or so people, perhaps more. So they really were in harm's way to get hit from the back, you know, by this moving train. And supposedly um, they were they were students. They were learning how to plow. That's why they were there when there was no snow. It's like, this is how you're going to drive the snow plow. This is your new job, right? The CTA is trying to train people to do all these jobs. They're short-staffed. Is that is that the situation on the snow plow car? They weren't just out for, like, let's just take the old snow plow out for a spin. And <laughs> make sure it works, right? Yeah. yeah, they apparently were out doing training. Uh, of course, we weren't expecting snow, but we are approaching the winter season in Oakton, which is that new stop I mentioned on the line. There's a maintenance facility next to it. So usually that stuff's moved at night. So they decided to move during the day, probably for crew training. And, uh, you know, boy, it's, um, it's uh, you know, would think could be done, you know, alerting other vehicles to maybe operate at reduced speed because there's two tracks. One track goes, you know, north and the other south. And they don't even run uh, the yellow line all night, do they? No. So that, that's usually that equipment is moved at night. So stuff goes back and forth and they keep it out of the way. Um, you know, in fairness, the CTA, the yellow line isn't like the red line. There's not a train every seven or eight minutes. So uh, you would think there'd be plenty of room. But what's interesting about this accident, it's hard to say, uh, that these metal projectiles that project, you know, that stick out from the car really did a number on the front of that uh, CTA train, almost tore the whole front out when that snowplow equipment crushed into it. Oh, wait a minute, and, wait, wait. Um, okay, wait. Which, I thought that the snowplow, it was hit head-on from the front of the CTA train, the direction that it was going into Howard, into the snowplow that was going outbound from Howard. Is that right? Head-to-head? Head? Yeah, they're... They both are moving in the same direction toward Howard. Oh. And then the uh, then the snowplow became disabled. Ah. The ride and the approach to the station. So the next train came and, you know, hit hit the uh, snowplow. Uh, hit it um, at the back. Not, yes. I can't remember which direction the snowplow was faced, but there's projectiles on the snowplow on both ends of this. Oh. So it's, not, it's not like hitting another car where you just have... These cars are really built to withstand impact, um, and uh, because these projectiles, you know, are, are sharp, they just cut right into the car, almost like you're hitting a oh my gosh, a like a can opener, a like like a like exactly. a can, like one of those metal. Oh, better analogy yet, like when you go to a scrap metal yard and you see them shredding the car <laughs> with them like that. Yes, yes, and it, in a way, we don't know yet to the investigation that could have been. <laughs> Uh, that could have absorbed some of the impact to make the blow a little less dramatic. But, you know, these projectiles slow the train before the, the frame of those two cars hit, um, you know, because uh, the passengers, several dozen were hurt, you know, by this collision. A lot of them, yeah. Whether, yeah, whether that um, the projectile allowed the train to absorb a little bit of the blow before the cars hit. 
both the motorman, the conductor, is the driver, appears to have gotten out of that dangerous spot, uh, perhaps at the last second. Huh. Okay. So, who in a in a case like this, who gets hurt the worst? The five people standing, the people sitting, the drivers in in general in a crash like this. I've always been amazed when you read about railroad crashes, how many people get hurt, and I never quite. Is it just like you're being shaken in a can? What happens to you in one of these crashes? Yeah, that's uh, exactly right, that some people refuse treatment and so forth, but they were uh, shaken up, and some of them included in this larger count of people hurt. But there does appear to be 23 or so that needed some medical attention. Uh, but you envision when that train stops. Nobody's expecting this, of course. It's not a, you know, a... It's like a car accident where people may, you know, see it coming. Yes. So there's an awful lot of head trauma where the body just flies ahead and hits the car seat in front of you, the you know, seat in front of you. Um, I think also there's um, some instances where you have rib injuries often with um, just the impact there. But boy, people have been pretty mum about uh, the three people that were in critical condition, and let's just hope they're hope they're on the mend. And were those neither of those were the driver of either uh, car, correct? But we don't know that for sure. It doesn't appear to be the uh, the CTA employees, but that's a little vague. I should say they were in uh, they had serious injuries, not critical. So we'll we'll see what comes out of it, but. In a way, we seem lucky there was no loss of life, given that these people on the snowplow could have been, you know, standing on the edge of the vehicle and just, you know, really, really been uh, that's, uh, fatal trauma would have been a possibility here. It seems so. Okay. In a moment, I'm going to ask you about how these things are investigated. So this is this is your bailiwick. So we're coming back and we're going to do that. Thank you so much. Stand by, Professor Sweeterman. We are WCP. It is Joan Esposito's show, live, local, and progressive. Sitting in for Joan, I'm Tori Ryder. More in a moment. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Tori Ryder. I am. That's Tori with you, writer like the truck, joining me, DePaul Professor Joseph Schwederman. Uh, he is a professor of transportation at DePaul. Gosh knows we need more people who know more about transportation because clearly we're not doing so well on our own. <laughs> professor, tell me, we're, and if you're just joining us, we're talking about the Yellow Line crash. Two more lawsuits filed today. Still unclear how people are doing. How does the NTSB unravel an accident like this and and I and this morning's report was that there was an old braking system also involved so so how do they figure all this stuff out yeah that's right they dispatch a team really quickly they don't uh investigate minor accidents if it's uh you know uh, just a little fender bender but if it does have injuries usually uh you know the main goal is to have sort of short-term conclusions they can release that are going to allow you know, unsafe practices to be fixed. Then there's the longer term. So the short term was really somewhat of a eye opener for us that the braking distances on these cars had been uh, uh, underestimated, you might say. So there's like a thousand feet more they need uh, to brake. Huh. And that was somewhat of an eye opener because these old 5,000 series cars had been in service for a while. But there was a wrinkle, and that was that uh, there was residue on the tracks. And we think. 
that could have been due perhaps to leaves on the tracks that had been crushed that leave uh, you know kind of a oily residue. So this expanded braking distance may be taking into account that those tracks may be slick. But, uh, boy, they weren't even close to having it right, saying 1,700 feet was breaking, and the NTSB said it's more like 1,000 feet more than that. Wow. So so they, they already knew that, and the CTA said, well, our, our data show we need this, and the NTSB said, you're wrong. We've known for a while that you actually need an extra 1,000 feet. Well, apparently the NTSB didn't know that until they looked at the cars and I think the specification of the brakes and uh, – and but what was a little odd about it, the CK didn't announce any uh, service changes or additional time in, in the schedules because of that announcement. I think they they just learned from this that they need extra time to stop vehicles in the case of emergencies. Now, the longer-term uh, investigation is more interesting, and it's always a little frustrating when the CTA probably knows things, but they have to keep tight-lipped until the investigation is done, like... You know, was this driver, uh, did he report being distracted or low on sleep? Or uh, why was it that uh, the dispatcher didn't call this train and say stop? And they called other trains and said, you know, stop where you are. Oh, did so they? We're, Wait, we're, did they? They called other trains and said there's a snowplow on the tracks, uh, stop, and, and not this train? They did. And it was really impressive how they reached out because they may have tried or maybe the train was... Uh, uh, they have a policy not to, you know, call certain trains. We don't know exactly uh, uh, why this train wasn't called. How do they do uh, that? They just have a radio in the operator's booth that they can just sort of do a mayday and interrupt everything else? Or how does that work? That's right. That's right. It's a call. They actually ask the uh, conductors to respond that they got the message. So there was kind of a furious set of um radio signals go out. That was actually pretty impressive that in very short notice, you know, this train, this, this snowplow stops and they're calling trains as kind of a backup safety uh, measure. Uh, but we don't know exactly uh, much about this train, maybe because the NTSB is investigating and it's uh, best to keep things under wraps until the investigation is done. Uh, is, it, is, it you know, clear, is it clear that they did yeah. call this train? No, we uh, don't. Uh, and I okay. haven't I haven't studied every transcript, but they did say there was no uh, either no call to this train or no response, and it's a little vague there. Okay. So we're we're in a bit of a of a waiting period now, and uh, uh, the last thing I'll just say here is that you know CTA's had somewhat similar accidents in 2014 out at O'Hare with the blue line overran the station, in 2019 a purple line train. So there's uh, you know there's I wouldn't say a pattern, but there's uh, obvious risk that people are, uh, you know, paying attention to. It's not unprecedented. It's interesting your your, your um, note that it could essentially have been what we've all had happen to us at one point or other in Chicago in the fall, pile of wet leaves. That- <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I was trying to look when I was on the purple line just seeing evidence of that, but didn't didn't get a good look. But, of course, this is exactly the season where the, you know, the wind blows and you get, leaves on tracks. Could have been oil on the tracks, but the word residue, I really hasn't seen that before in safety reports. Um, and uh, that, you know, wouldn't think it would take 2,700 feet to stop an L train, a fairly short one. But uh, if you put, you know, slick tracks, you know, that train's going to slide as well. So is it possible that 
Okay, because I I don't understand the mechan the braking mechanism on these cars, but it seems to me if you stop the wheels from moving, but the track is slippery, either because there's some kind of residue or some you know oil that can or brake fluid or any of that lubricating stuff. If that's on the track, it doesn't matter if you stop the wheels; the thing's just going like an ice skate, right? Oh, that's right. It's sort of like your uh, anti-lock brakes. You know, you try not to have the wheels when you're slowing down right because you lose some of that friction and so and it also appears just based on my brief you know look at the topography that this might have been a slight downhill segment before that so we're trying to stop a train with a downhill grade is, is really tough huh. so that's sort of the mystery did the signal turn red and did the uh, conductor miss it and then not stop quick enough or was there no signal between the usually uh Usually there's multiple systems that have to fail for, uh, of course, for two trains to hit each other. Okay. Last question, because you've been so generous with your time, and I've been torturing you with depictions of Wiley Coyote <laughs> on those little cars and, and ice skates and slipping on leaves and every other thing that probably in your capacity as an academic and professional, you're just like, where is this woman coming from? Last question. Um Given the fact that there are so many lawsuits that are being filed now, how much information will the CTA have to make public? How much information will the NTSB have to make public? How much are they likely to make public if they have a choice about it? What can we expect to find out and when? Yeah, and that's a, a really important thing because, you know, if the NTSB takes uh, a year to present the results, the people in lawsuits aren't going to wait that long. and the courts will likely rule that uh, that information has to be disclosed, such as our radio communication between the uh, you know the conductor and uh, how fast the train was going when it started, or where the train started decelerating. All that's critical for a lawsuit. You can't make people wait uh, a year for that. One thing that's going to get interesting in these lawsuits, and I, I and I hope it doesn't uh, get taken out of context, is. You know, the NTSB in 2014 said that CTA should install a positive train control, which is this very expensive GPS system that automatically stops trains. And we know one day the CTA will have that, but it's really expensive, and the CTA has got a budget cliff coming up, and it's not clear it would have stopped the accident. But there's going to be a little bit of a, of a you know, tornado around that topic, and whether positive train control should have happened uh, on the railroad. We we heard that with the Amtrak uh, collision on the East Coast. Like, where was your and Amtrak saying, "Well, you know, we'd we'd love to have that, but we can't afford it." Um, it has it gotten any cheaper? It's gotten better, but okay. you know, CTA is different than a, like a metro train where you got freight trains that are super heavy and hey, collisions there. Okay, have a different character, and so it's a. Uh, it's coming, but boy, it's uh, it's a big budget lift for uh, an agency as big as CPA. Well, thank you for being with us. And speaking of what's coming, Patty Vasquez, just after the news. Professor Sweeterman, thank you so much for being with us. Have a happy Thanksgiving. I'm Turi Ryder, and I'll be with you on Jones Show Friday. Enjoy your family day, however you make up your family.